Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. here. Welcome to the Once We Dream Get Back Deep Dive. Now, just to preface this episode, this is basically a long conversation with my friend, musician Jonathan Scoffron, split into three parts. Now, Jonathan and I actually recorded this on four different occasions. For multiple reasons, we had to start and stop recording. So it was basically an ongoing conversation that mostly took place at the beginning of December. And then we finished it right after the holidays. Now, because of this recording schedule, our conversation was a little disjointed and we circled some of our favorite issues repeatedly. So I tried to edit it cleanly by topic and that just did not work. So what I decided to do, instead of whittling it down to a reasonably concise episode, was to put out a looser kind of format that just follows the flow of our conversation. Because this is a podcast. So basically, this is a ridiculously deep, potentially slightly unhinged conversation between two Beatles nuts, split into three parts, which will come out consecutively in the next few days. Again, this was recorded mostly two months ago, and I suspect our thinking may have evolved. I certainly know mine has. I'm much less conflicted than I was then. At that time, I both loved the film that we got and was so excited about it, but was also frustrated by the exclusion of some key elements that I think are critically important. And of course, this was meaningful to me having spent so much time trying to figure out what I think the key elements of the story are. So, um, you know, I was a little more reactive then. Now I'm a lot more chill about it and appreciate what we have. But nevertheless, I thought it was interesting to present this conversation because the early reactions are authentic and relevant and I think they have a point. Now, even though one would think that this deep dive would be all-encompassing, given the fact that it's three parts, it's not. There are so many other things to talk about, which is why, over time, I will continue to have episodes about Get Back in the Get Back series. Now, just to give a sense of how these three parts are divided, in part one, we covered Jackson's narrative choices. And then, we did not mean to do this. This was not planned, but we went off on an extensive tangent about Lennon and McCartney's relationship. A lot of breakup series themes revisited, probably because this issue looms so large over the Get Back sessions, and it kind of goes unaddressed in the film. But it's also critically important to the dynamics of the Beatles. So I suppose intuitively we felt like we had to address it, you know, in terms of what's going on between them, the differences between how maybe Peter Jackson has talked about, some of his narrative choices and how that impact the story that he presents versus the one that we presented. So be warned, there is a lot of backstory in this one before we dive into the specifics of the film. We also discuss other things such as George's difficult position in the band, Yoko's presence and the impact of her presence, 
and some of the band dynamics. In part two, we chat about the trajectory of the Get Back film and the impact of moving from Twickenham Studios to Savile Row, and some of the assumptions about what gave the project momentum. Um, we also dig into the lunchroom scene, or the, the supposed secret lunchroom scene between John and Paul, leadership of the Beatles, the impact of Billy Preston, the musical conversation between Lennon and McCartney, and of course, we return to our favorite subjects of George walking out, Yoko's presence, and the Lennon-McCartney relationship. We also discuss their musicianship. In part three, which may be my favorite, we cover the Peter Seller scene, the hypothetical Beatles collective concept, the independent album concept, the working dynamics between John, George, and Paul, the India scene, and as always, because we couldn't leave it, we return to George leaving Yoko and the Lennon-McCartney relationship. And don't worry, even though we do return to these subjects, we do actually have different conversations about them each time we talk about them. So I guess that's all the setting up we need. Buckle up, this is a bit of a crazy ride. Here we go. Once We Dream Get Back series includes interviews with a number of people that I thought shed some really fascinating and insightful light on uh, on the Get Back film and the period. But I also really, really just wanted to have a conversation where I was able to go deep. And so to help me do this, I have the wonderful Jonathan Scavron here. Uh, so just a little bit of background about Jonathan. He is a professional musician and a music educator based in Melbourne, Australia. I guess I like the Australians. Uh, Jonathan is also a composer, arranger, music director, multi-instrumentalist, who has worked as a performing and recording artist in a vast array of musical styles. And most importantly to me and to our subject, he is a certified Beatles nut, who also, in my opinion, happens to be unusually insightful about the Beatles and their interpersonal dynamics. So I am so thrilled to have you here with me, Jonathan, to just to go into all the details that I'm dying to talk about. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Diana, and for that very generous introduction. Um, <laughs> all true. I, I feel honored to be spoken about in those terms. And of course, I'm a, I'm a longtime One Sweet Dream listener and fan, so it's it's bit of a thrill to, to be on the show. Well, I, I must say that this is not your first time. This is the first time you're going to appear, but we actually have already recorded another episode that's coming where we talk about the Beatles as musicians and we dive into the musicianship of the Beatles, which I think is going to be a, an amazing little series as well. Me too. Okay, excellent. I'm excited to, to dig into all of the dynamics in this film. And it's an important film, you know, because... Uh, it gives us a lot to look at, which is why I wanted to do a series. I think, you know, there's so much to talk about that I thought it was worth having multiple conversations. So thanks for being here. I know from uh, from talking to you that you loved the documentary, right? Yeah, I, I loved it. To me, it's it's the thing that as Beatles fans, we've always wanted 
and and never really had is that opportunity to to really watch them work and yes we know they know they were being filmed so it, it may yes. not be quite as <clears throat> uh fly on the wall as it might otherwise be but to me it's it's a real thrill to watch not just their process their creative process and their musicianship obviously f- for me as a musician it's a, a real gold mine in terms of just watching four amazing musicians collaborate and just watching them as individuals as well and seeing really what they each bring which you hear on the records but to, to watch that evolve is a really a new window I think into each of them as individual musicians as well as collectively as a group of musicians uh but you know apart from all of that it's it's a thrill to to watch them interact and to see in action their uh interpersonal dynamics um obviously at an interesting time mm-hmm. um and i guess it i find there's sort of two there's two parts of me there's one part that is sort of critically looking at the way the story is is being told and looking at that contextually with everything that we know um, and sort of having a critical hat on, I suppose. Uh, But then there's the other part of me that is just a fan and is just drinking every little moment that we get to, to watch these guys make magic. So I think there's, many, many rewatches in store where <laughs> I would just enjoy uh, all of that and take in as much of it as I can. Um, I must say that uh, I knew that you loved it because when I, I kept asking you, like, did you see the whole thing yet? And you were going like, no, I don't want to rush it because I don't want it to be over. Uh, so that is a reflection of how much uh, you were loving it. And I had to reassure you that it's okay the second time you watch it, it's just as much fun. So I think you're watching it for the second time right now, right? And you find it, do you find it just as much fun? Yes. And I find that I'm definitely seeing things that I not necessarily missed the first time, but, you know, every time you see something that's so dense and complex, obviously you you learn something new each time. And uh, I'm already finding new perspectives on the second watch so yeah Yeah, I really did too it's like the the, every time I went back I saw different things um I'm curious Diana to know what what you think of the film because um you've obviously spent a lot of time digging into I mean the whole Beatles story but in particular this period has been a a rich source of um, you've done an in-depth episode on Let It Be before any of this came out. Right. Okay, good. Uh, I actually must say I went back and listened to our Let It Be episode and I was like, hey, this is pretty awesome. I was quite thrilled. So uh, that was good news. I think there's a lot to love about Get Back. It's beautiful looking. As you said uh, already, it's a goldmine in terms of observing their creative practice. you see the love and connection between the men, which I don't think we have any opportunity to just watch for such a long period. Their interactions, their body language, their dynamics, you know. Uh, so that Certainly it's really... not like in a way that is real. I mean, yeah. I, know, I know I said that they know they're being filmed, but, you know, they're being filmed constantly over a three-week period. So that there's 
there's certainly authentic interaction in there. Whereas I think everything else we'd seen up to this point was in some ways authorized or right, right, right. Um, well, I think, that's a good, I think that's a good point. I mean, that's the difficulty with this is it's, it's sort of looking at this with the understanding that this is not them completely relaxed. But sometimes it is. Like sometimes they forget the camera's there and so some of the interactions are real. Yeah, well, you can't uh, be on for three weeks straight. You know? Right, right. It's pretty damn easy to forget. You yeah. know, when you start when you start working on your project, it's concerningly easy to forget about mics and cameras when you get involved in stuff. Well, I mean, I think any of us creatives will know that once you get immersed in your creative yes. process, yes. then... No- Nothing <laughs> around you exists, whether exactly. it's cameras or whether it's just life, you know. Um, ask Although a my- partner of any creative person yeah, yeah, yeah. how easy it is to interact with them when they're, you know, in the process of creating. Yeah, yeah except for Michael Lindsay Hogg made it fairly difficult for them to forget because every time they're having an intimate <laughs> conversation, there'd be a boom coming down right in front of them. And he was constantly reminding them, like, all the better to hear you. It's like, Michael, stop that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I think uh, for me, what really helped was it gives a sense of the timeline. Uh, you know, I'm constantly trying to create timelines to understand what actions led to other actions. You do get a sense with the Niagara tapes, but it, it was it just made a lot more sense with his calendar, with the day by day. I really, really appreciated that. And you see something like um, you see John blossoming throughout this period. You see John showering or bathing and looking better and better as it goes. And I think that that's a reflection, you know, knowing what we know about John, John says in 1967 that he almost loses himself when he's not around his Beatle buddies. And you see that the more immersed John is, the better he looks. And so it's good to see the trajectory. Um, I think it does reset some of our beliefs, you know, in terms of you see the love and connection and commitment that's really there between all of the members. So, you know, any of this view that the Beatles were done by this period, I hope this dispels that. There's certain things that you just look at and go, well, okay, I can't believe that John wasn't interested anymore because he's involved. So I think that it's um, an incredible forensic look at the time that really gives us a peek inside this very specific moment in time. And I'm thrilled to have this. And I don't begrudge anyone from just being like, you know what? That's all I need. I just want to look at this. I don't want to listen to anybody tell me what's going on. Cool. But my particular interest in the Beatles, beyond their music, has been their story. And so, you know, I'm always going to look at it through the the lens of what is the impact on the Beatles narrative. And uh, I think that this is all, this is a bit of a problem in terms of, uh, being a document that it's so compelling that I've seen some people saying that, oh, now I understand everything. You know, that, that this idea that this tells us everything that we need to know about the Beatles. Uh, but this is a snapshot of a particular period, you know, which is pretty, it's a very specific period that is very different than what we would have seen, for example, if we had watched them recording Revolver or Rubber Soul or Sgt. Pepper. Probably every album is a little bit different But this specifically is after uh, a real period of turmoil, which is the White Album. Now, we know it's not as bad as what we once thought, but I do think when we look at the trajectory of the Beals, that's when everything started to splinter between them. And this is a coming back afterwards. And, you know, John Lennon is taking 
uh, heroin with Yoko Ono. Yoko sitting next to him. Like there's just a lot of weird elements in. So I think that we have to be careful with reading too, too much into everything that's going on here. Yeah, I think I think it's a great point you make about how specific the time period is because yeah. it's really easy when you watch this sprawling eight-hour documentary because of how epic it is, yeah. just in length. You yes, know? yes, yes, exactly. Um, and also like the way Peter Jackson has um, directed it and framed it, yes. um, it does have the feel Yes. of this sort of overarching tale, you know, where he he gives us the little montage of, you know, previously in Beatle life at the start of the first episode and we, we get the full telling of, you know, the, the 1940 to yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, 1969, exactly. right? And then we get this, you know, eight hours of, of this three-week period and the way it culminates in, in the rooftop concert Yes, it really does feel like this complete kind of picture, and and I think that plays into what you're talking about that that sort of um, uh, how easy it is to think, oh well, this is the whole thing, you know, this is the whole picture, and now I've seen everything that can frame my new view on on what the Beatles were and how they worked and how they related yes, to each other. exactly. You know, Michael Lindsay Hogg actually said, he said that mm. nobody was normal during this period. You know, we know that a year earlier, John Lennon was not with Yoko Ono. Paul McCartney was not with Linda Eastman. At this point, Linda, Linda is pregnant. There's, there's just a lot of upheaval that is fairly new and they're all still reacting to it. And so if you would have seen John and Paul, even a year earlier, their relationship would have been different. Um, You know, they've had India. There's just a lot of things, a lot of underlying dynamics at play that we don't necessarily know. Not that it's Peter Jackson's job to tell us, like he didn't have to tell us the whole story, Mm. but I do believe he does impose his point of view on us, you know, what he believes the story to be uh, in a way that he's telling the story. And that's kind of his job as a, um, as a filmmaker, you know, is, is to have some kind of narrative arc in there. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I think the question of what Peter Jackson's job is here is yeah. an, a very interesting and not a very clear cut, conversation you know great point point. yeah because there's a narrative like we're working with a a three-week time period that is a project a specific project that they've gone in to do and really like the the thing that sort of that is black and white about Peter Jackson's job is present the narrative of these three weeks of the project from start to finish, how it evolved, where it started, where it finished, what happened in between. But I think what does go beyond that is where Peter Jackson gets into a little bit of other storytelling to do with the dynamics in the band. Yes. Um, Yes. and, And some of that does come through in the way he cuts certain footage and uses certain audio paired up with certain images. Um, So, yeah, I think that there is definitely a bit of editorialising in there, which I'm sure you are going to go on to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I am, I am. And that's the thing is that he he introduces this and, you know, makes the the, the claim that this is as close as we can get to the truth. And and 
you know, it's just like, for God's sakes, we're seeing eight hours of it where you've made a lot of choices Hmm. and it's a film and you can tell an entirely different story. And so, yeah. So does it come across as disingenuous to you when Peter Jackson says we've tried to make this as accurate? A representation as possible. <laughs> it doesn't because I believe that Peter Jackson believes his story. And so I do know a lot of the context and I do know a lot of the audio. And I do think that it is a whitewash in some ways. Yeah. Um, and so my concern is that people are going to take this as the truth and it's not. This is well, the truth people of- took Michael Lindsay Hogg's version as the truth for 50 years, didn't they? So- <laughs> it's true. So maybe it's not bad that we have another truth, but let's just say neither of them are the truth. They are, they are both filmmakers' perspectives. You know, when I look at what he's cut, it's uh, everything we used in our Let It Be series. We highlighted these things because we thought they were important to the story, and the fact that Peter Jackson cut them means he's seeing a different story. But it's not like I'm looking at this and all of a sudden going, oh, we were wrong. It was like, oh, no, Peter Jackson chose to cut some things that I think were really important to telling the story. You know, it's not based on just the audio and the, the, the film footage that we've got from this period. It's from understanding the larger context of the breakup. Another sort of useful thing to remind people of in terms of how specific this time period is and how small it actually is yes. in, um, in perspective of the, the whole story. Yeah. And, and so this is something that really struck me when, when I was watching it yeah. is like, there's obviously the whole thing is, is leading up to some sort of performance. That's the plan from the start. And there is this whole kind of shadow hanging over the project which is this idea that the Beatles are a little shy of performing, right? Yes, yes. Um, You get the sense that there's a certain hesitancy when it comes to playing live. Yeah. Um, now, if you actually do the maths, um, that, it's actually less than two and a half years since yeah. they played live. So August 66, I think, was the end of the 66 tour and this is january 69 so it's it's only two years and five months or something it's not such a long time right right. but when we think about the beatles touring years yeah we think of the the mop top period and and this is like seems like a lifetime away from that and when you think about everything that's happened between the touring years and this it's like that's half the beatles story right Mm -hmm. so it just goes to show that so much happens in so little time. Like time is so condensed when it comes to the Beatles' story and evolution and narrative. Yeah, you it, it just time sort of operates on a different plane. It does. <laughs> One thing that I notice is John and Paul, especially John, talks about things being two years no matter how long, like they have no sense of time. They never know how long time, because I think um, the amount that they pack into one year, like, you know, I've been critical of the um, romanticizing of Paul's 
um, great depression Scottish period, yeah. depression period that, you know, who knows how long it actually was, but his Scottish period really is three weeks. But I think it feels like forever because these guys managed to pack in about like two lifetimes into every year. Yeah. So that when we see this microcosm of three weeks in January, 1969, that means in February and March, they are having equally important and dense you know, other yes. things happening throughout exactly. the year. And that, yeah. you know, and so that's why we leave this off and they're on a high and the Beatles are like ready to go. And yet things change radically in six months. There's a lot that happens in the Beatles. So concluding too much from this period is dangerous and not understanding everything that feeds into this period is also a little bit um, dangerous, but also the cuts that Peter Jackson made to this uh, documentary do impact our takeaway from it. And again, I love what we have. I'm so grateful to have it. I mean, it's insane what we have. Just the ability to watch the Beatles and them look real and see them. It's incredible. What Peter Jackson has done is magic. And I don't want to be too critical because I love what we have. But as somebody who's trying to reconstruct the story, you know, I have a point of view too. And when I look at what he chose not to include, um, what he chose not to include were things like, you know, there was a long and important conversation about Yoko speaking for John and how much of an issue that is for George and the band as a whole. She was talking for John. And I don't think he really believed any of that, you know. No, it's, it's just John didn't talk. Yoko talked for John. It would be George Day. In the middle of all of that, actually, George went. So you will see it. See, but their point is that they... And I think by cutting that, he minimized some of the impact uh, of Yoko being there and the, the impact that Yoko had on the band. And, you know, I can see why he's done this. I think he wants to tell a happier story. And I don't know how much influence Yoko or the Lennon estate has had on this, but by minimizing this it changes the story. And again, I'm not being critical of even Yoko speaking for John or Yoko being there. There's no judgment. All I'm saying is that by removing this, he's changing the story. He's busy. He's cut some of John's more provocative comments, uh, which again alludes to some underlying dynamics between them. Um, he cuts some of John and Paul's discussions where Paul is encouraging John to do something solo if he wants. Um, he also cuts some of the important conversations about Lennon and McCartney's relationship. He cut Paul's comments about John's desire for telepathy, which I think is incredibly important um, to understand dream, what's going the, on. The cut the dream. Uh, the, I had a dream about you. Uh, you were in my dream last night. Was That's I? That's right. Your, yeah which is very connected to that. There's a specific conversation between Neil and Paul where Paul is going like, I know why John's not talking. 
you know, that he wants us and he doesn't totally spell it out, but he's like, we're not quite at this level where we can communicate like that, uh, which is really important to understand why sometimes John is silent and how connected he thinks he and Paul and he and the band are. Well, that's, that's, that's the trouble, you see, because that's it. It's like with, your, with our heightened awareness, the answer is not to say anything, you know. But it isn't, because, I mean, we screw each other up totally when we don't do that, because we're not ready for your heightened vows of silence. We're really not ready. We don't know what the fuck each other's talking about. No, you know, we all just sort of get... Oh, yeah, right, yeah. But see, that's it, that's why John doesn't say anything. Because <laughs> he, you know, he just... That's, that was, there was something the other day. I just said, so what do you think? And he just sort of didn't say anything. You know? And I, I know exactly why, you know. I mean, I wouldn't if... Uh, he cuts John and Yoko's discussions about heroin, which is really important because he does pick up later in the day where John is kind of on fire, where he's sort of monologuing and everybody's paying attention to him. It's quite funny we're in this, when they're in this circle with uh, Peter Sellers. And I think that John is kind of, <laughs> kind of being a little bit indiscreet in this period. And I think if you don't know that John is probably high, you don't really understand why Paul's trying to cut him off. Just don't leave the needles lying around, you know. We've got a bad reputation now with John getting busted. And I know what it's like for showbiz people. They're under a great strain and they need a little relaxation. Yes, And that's why he's going to bed. It's a choice between that and exercise, you know. And uh, drugs win hand down. I say hand down. Well, shooting is exercise. Shooting is exercise, oh yeah. Well, it's been lots You of also fun. don't understand Paul's concern or their excessive attention that they're putting on John and John and Yoko and why Paul may be sad at this point. Yeah. I can't remember who said this, but I read a quote from somebody involved in the film that I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something like, I always thought that, you know, Disney was the pinnacle in terms of protectiveness over their brand. Yeah. But working with the Beatles made me realize that nobody is as protective over their brand. But that struck me because who are the Beatles now, right? We're, we're, yeah. we're talking about, obviously, that includes the Lennon estate and the Harrison estate. Um, and I think it would be naive of anyone to assume that Yoko and or whoever runs Yoko's affairs, whether it be Sean or whatever, uh, was not very protective and specific and prescriptive about what could and could not be included. And I think a lot of what you're talking about with the heroin stuff, um, and Yoko in general, yeah. Yoko's presence and Yoko. And yeah. I mean, you, you look at how much media there has been about how this film recasts Yoko yeah. Yeah. in the story. You know, that Yoko is almost having a renaissance. A, a renaissance <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, in terms of the way she's seen by the public. Um, yeah. So uh, I think we've got to be, you know, we've got to be sort of realistic about that aspect of it, you know, about the control over yes. the project. Now, Jackson said that neither 
McCartney nor Starr asked for anything to be cut. Yes, well. Uh, yeah. So, and and I think Yoko is having a renaissance right now where, you know, people are celebrating her and saying we owe Yoko an apology and that kind of thing. And I think the the Lennon-Ono estate is being very, very protective. And, you know, Yoko's in her late 80s. Her son, who's managing the Lennon-Ono estate right now, I think really wants to celebrate her. And I understand that, you know, he adores his mother. She took the heat and the, the, brunt of, yeah. the brunt of everything for so long that I think that in some way this is deserved. Like she, she does deserve to be absolved for a lot of the inappropriate criticism she received, you know? So I understand that that's very nice. And I even think Paul wants to do that at this point. I think at this point, like Paul's being really, he's, he's supporting this narrative. And even if you look back in those days, Paul was supporting this narrative of they're not so bad. Sometimes they go overboard, but I love Yoko. So I don't think Yoko wants to be blamed. And I think in some ways she was very incorrectly blamed. People just kind of, I think, want to give her this period of right now, like, okay, let's just celebrate Yoko. You can see she's, she's quite lovely. You know, there's lots of things to like about Yoko. But on the other hand, anybody in the Beatles story deserves to be looked at as, as a player in the story. And I think that Yoko deserves to be looked at in terms of a person with agency, even though she was the target and victim of a lot of sexism and racism, that doesn't mean that she shouldn't be looked at as a person in this story. Like if we cut the fact that Yoko was speaking for John, if we cut the fact that Yoko did want John to do other things, like for example, in this BBC interview, you know, Yoko is recorded as saying, I'm interested in my work and I'm interested in John's work, not as much the Beatles work. Decorate the gallery or anything, you know. I'm interested in John's work and my work, you know, or the work that we do together, you know. But not so much Beatles because, well, that's something else, you know. The conversation tends to be all about Beatles all the time, you know. I'm such an involved person so that I, I don't really, really realize that usually. But suddenly sometimes I realize, oh, you know, it's just old Beatle talk. John, does it bother you at all? If we don't take into consideration that that's going on at this time, we're not actually looking at Yoko as a person with agency. You know, Yoko did ask for a mic. John and Yoko were taking heroin. And that's not Yoko's fault. But she's part of that, right? So... Yeah, I mean, I I totally get what you're saying. And it's uh, there's also a thing here, like... I suppose to play devil's advocate for a moment, this film is being seen very widely around the world. It's it's a huge phenomenon. Um, it's reigniting the sort of interest in the Beatles and and their story. And it's it's a big scale production. It's Disney, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I think I can understand the overcorrection in a way because Yoko Ono is, you know, throughout the years has been, you know, the, the butt of the jokes, you know, you can call someone a Yoko if, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly, yes. So, yeah, exactly. So I can imagine Peter Jackson thinking, you know, we really need to stay away from the story that Yoko broke up the Beatles. Yep. That's yep. that's the trope. Yep. That's the cliche. Uh, I think 
the masses, the sort of the casual fans slash uh, just general public. So, so just taking away the deep fans for a minute. Um, that is the impression that's out there, right? So you can see why there would be that temptation to overcorrect that and to, to exclude anything that bought into that narrative in any way because anything that made that suggestion would yep. feed this idea or validate this idea, you know, whereas obviously the story that Peter Jackson is trying to tell is, um, no, 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 Yoko was not the factor that everyone claims her to have been. Um, and the the way that he chose to do that, obviously, was to exclude anything that would um, support that idea. Now, for us, the the deep fans, that's a problem because we already knew that that yeah. trope was, was not accurate. Right. So we're, we're looking for the truth, you know. We're sort yeah. of, we're trying to really pinpoint the, the truth here whereas for the general public it's more about overcorrecting that mistake yeah yeah know? i mean i i think that's a great point in terms of like this is disney and peter yeah. jackson wants a nice story where nobody's really blamed and that's actually um the story he thinks he's telling but here would here would be my counter to that okay is that Yoko's 88 and she's taken the brunt of the blame for a long time. And so I understand the, you know what, let's, let's show her in the best light, but you know what? Someday Paul McCartney's not going to be here. And someday Ringo Starr is not going to be here. And you know who took a lot of the brunt of the blame of the breakup? Paul McCartney. So you know what, if this is going to be a piece of history, then you got to do the same for every single person. And and again, I did a whole series on the breakup and don't blame Yoko. So I'm not I'm no. not suggesting that Yoko's to blame. What I'm suggesting is that I also don't want whitewashing and Yoko is an element. She's a factor, you know? Yeah, I take your point. And uh, this is this is what makes the Beatles such a complex beast when it comes to narratives and and public perceptions and stuff because <laughs> We're talking about a level of subtlety here yeah. that only real fans understand, right? You know, like as far as Yoko is concerned, like to, to be able to say, well, we knew that Yoko didn't break up the Beatles, yeah, yeah. right? So yeah. we, we don't need the overcorrection. It's just the, the fandom is so big that, um, you know, it's sort of hard to know who you're talking to, I think. Does that make sense? <laughs> It does, but you know what? Like, I don't want to really debate the merits of uh, Peter Jackson. I'm thrilled to have this. I think it's, yeah. I think it's great to give him the benefit of the doubt and understand where he's coming from. And again, I mean, what he's put out there is amazing. Personally, I think that Jackson has cut it to how he has seen it, and he wants to play nice. But that's kind of like it's kind of like he's taken a paternal point of view too. Like, I'm going to present this because this is what the world needs. And that's a choice, you know? And I think that's lovely and great. The thing is, is this is a podcast that's trying to get to a better understanding of the narrative. And so, uh, sure. you know what? The rest of this episode is really just going to be about, like, what I see, what you see, the cuts that he made, how that impacts the story, what the story is. I mean, like, we can, we can still tell some home truths about what is in it and what isn't in it and what story it might tell that might not be 
exactly uh, yeah, yeah, objective exactly. or whatever. You know? Exactly. There could be a number of factors at play here that influence the way the story has been told. I think what matters is that we've got a great film that's really fun to watch and that has amazing magic in it. And also we can be honest and pick it apart and say, well, let's not forget that this and this also happened and wasn't in the film. And, you know, we can do what One Sweet Dream has always done, which is tell the story with honesty and shedding away some of the layers of... uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of magic in this film. I mean, this is a brilliant piece of work. This is what we need to do to talk about the film, is to talk about what was in it and what wasn't in it that could illuminate what's going on and potentially the effect of cutting some important storylines. I mean, Jackson had no choice but to cut. There was no perfect version, and I think what we we have is superb, magnificent. And yet there are some storylines that I wish were a part of it, and I still think we should talk about that. So that's what I hope we can do. Yeah. From what I can tell, when I see him interviewed, I don't even think it was Lennon, oh no. I mean, I think they probably asked for some stuff, but I think he just... It is his nature to protect them because he loves them. And I don't think he wanted to tell the story about heroin. And I I think he wanted to tell the story where he said like, well, Paul was sad. I think he buys more into the dominant narrative and that's the story he told because that's the story he sees. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in your take. I mean, that's not something I got from the film at all. I think, I suspect maybe that Part of your um, view on his view, if that makes yeah, sense, yeah, yeah. it comes maybe from some interviews with him that you've seen, um, which I haven't. Well, I think you're right that unfortunately I heard these interviews and he says the same thing, like he has said the same thing in, in multiple interviews. So I had that going in, but I'd already seen half of the film by the time he said that and I had already read that in because of what I knew he had cut from the film. Right. You know, it's not that I think the story tells that, but I could tell by what he was including and, and not including, I could tell he was trying to tell this story, you know? And I, again, I think he's he's a 50 or 60 something longtime Beatles fan that he has said he was surprised at how soft and gentle John was. I think he came in with the Lennon Remembers perspective on John and that colors it, you know? I also think... Can you just indulge me here and let me go into the breakup series for a couple of minutes? Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she's like a casual Beatle fan, and uh, she had seen a little bit of this, and she really empathized with Paul's perspective as a creative. She was kind of like, oh, you know, I so, I so get that Paul just wanted... He wanted to drive the Beatles. He was so creatively inspired. He loved the Beatles so much. He wanted... this to be perfect and it was frustrating because he wanted everybody to rise to the same level of enthusiasm and she was like and you know Paul really is the adult in this situation and you know he he just loves John unconditionally and I said oh well you know and Peter Jackson's trying to tell the story that you know that uh, Paul is so hurt because John is going off with this new creative partner. And she said, well, I don't really see that because John's so connected to Paul and you can tell they're each other's muses, but you know, maybe John needed to go off and do something else. And that story is formed 
from understanding things from Paul's perspective for 50 years. We're seeing things from Paul's perspective of like, I love John and I understand he had to go off with Yoko and I was hurt. So we all over empathize with Paul's perspective because we hear things from Paul's perspective constantly. Also, the dominance of the Lenin narrative where John was fronting and hurt and angry and put out that, you know, Paul was just a, you know, we were sidemen for Paul and he was too bossy. And, and John saying, Paul was jealous of me and Yoko. And, you know, he was boring and creatively conservative. It's these two things that form heavily the narrative that we buy into. I think what you miss is what's driving John and where John's at. You know, I think you can get a sense that there's something going on with John, that he's a little bit conflicted, um, that he's a little disengaged at times and then fully engaged. We've got this weird situation where John's got Yoko beside him and we know that John's experimenting with heroin. Like, I think there's a lot of dynamics that are playing into why John is acting the way he is and why Paul is anxious. And, um, you know, I suspect a lot of people just read, like my friend did, into the narrative based on what we generally know. But that, that was sort of the point of the breakup series is to figure out what is going on here. And I don't think it's that simple. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of baggage between John and Paul and reasons why Paul is conflicted about how to deal with John and why John is conflicted about his commitment to Paul and the Beatles, you know? And one of the things that's very instructive is to look at what's gone on between them and look at how John sees Paul. You know, I think right now we understand Paul's clear love for John, but I think something that's less clear is how John at that time saw Paul. That original point of view always positions John Lennon as the center of the universe and the desirable one in the situation. And I'm not saying that John doesn't deserve to be worshipped because John is a genius. But what we did was we said, okay, well, let's actually look at the reality of the situation and look at John's point of view on Paul when he's talking about Paul contemporaneously, when he's talking about Paul for the rest of the, the decade of the 70s, and how John sees himself in the situation. And when we looked at that, it changed everything. Because like in John's version, and Lennon remembers, he was done the minute Yoko came, he was bored. Yoko came in, he couldn't be bothered with the rest of the Beatles. Whereas if you actually look at what happened, it was John who was freaked out in early 68. Uh, I did a whole episode on the interview that John gave a few days after he asked for the divorce, where he talks about for years, he felt so insecure and not good. And he was going through murder when he, he knew that Paul felt full of confidence and strong. And so it's a very different story where John sees Paul as a God, where John is worried about his own capability, where he's worried that Paul might leave. And so when you understand that Paul is as desirable to John as John is to Paul, that changes everything. 
John is reacting to Paul, pulling out the stops to be seen, to be heard. Uh, a lot of his moves of bringing Yoko in for strength and to provoke are to ensure that Paul remains as engaged with John as John is with Paul. And so it's our understanding of looking at what John has said and what George has said that they see Paul as so incredibly powerful and creatively desirable in this period. And the world saw Paul like that too. And seeing it that way has to be read into this period. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that the film, you know, I think one thing the film has like ubiquitously achieved yes, is yes. demonstrating Paul's creative genius, right? Like yeah. that, if there's one takeaway that yeah. I've seen consistently in everything I've read about this film, yeah. it is um, just people's general kind of awe at, um, at Paul as a creative beast, um, which I think is really good because, you know, as you said, like Paul has been positioned as creatively conservative compared right. to John yeah. as part of that sort of narrative that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and this really kills that once and for all, I think, because um, because you can see, or it should anyway, you know, I mean, you can see um, Paul's constant um, – need to push the boundaries creatively to yeah. evolve, to improve, to change. Yeah. Um, he's always on, on the lookout for the next thing, for the better thing, for the new yeah. thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but just back to sort of like the dynamic though, I think the other thing about John in the film, and I've read this in a few places, um, is that you see that, you know, when John is sort of when John looks like he's kind of tuned out um, you know that there are some, there are some bits in the film where where he seems a bit I guess spacey you know um, and he's just he's not engaged in anything in those moments yeah he's just he's just off in his own world yeah. or whatever is he like he's not present in any way right yeah for the rest of the film where he is where he there's more life in him yeah. he's engaged yes. with something yes. Yes. it's it's the band and specifically it's paul um most of his energy is directed at paul that's right uh or at least at the music and at the band in general but but even most of that is directed towards paul so it's not this thing where john is off engaged in more interesting, more creative things, oh, right, right, not right. off with Yoko, yeah. you know. He's not sort of over in a corner doing his own thing or uh, dismissing what's happening, you know. It's none of that. It's actually his his full attention and engagement is with the band, except for in those times where he's kind of lifeless and not engaged in anything. And, That's and right. you know. 
Yeah, you can yeah. see that McCartney and Lennon still have, I mean, this is a problem for George, I think, is that they still spark off each other immediately. They, they are still yeah. muses to each other. They're still working together quite well. And they still derive so much energy from each other as well as from the band, you know? And so the original story doesn't make sense when you see what a creative force Paul McCartney is or George Harrison is at this point. Um, but also what a creative force John is within the band at this point. That's right. Because that's right. No, that's a sense. great point. You know, you can't like, how could, how can it be both? You know, how can he be bored by the Beatles and spending all of his creative energy on other right. things? When right. you when we're watching him inject himself one hundred percent into right. the creative process, that's know? right. That's an excellent point. So not only is Paul an incredible force to be reckoned with, and to relegate him to, you know, to, like how did they take Paul at the height of his creative powers, where he has like if you look at the songs Paul brings to this, it's insane. Yeah. He's just written. Um, postcard with Donovan and and actually Donovan says that Paul and Donovan are working together in December and Donovan said Paul and I had a close relationship in the 60s for brief periods and I have nothing but respect for that man's writing talent I can write a song every five minutes if we get going and Paul can as well and that was the breakup really with the Beatles I think because Paul is so creative honestly if he just tinkles the piano there's another song Paul needed at the time somebody like me who could sit around and jam with him the Beatles didn't jam. And at that time that they made records, every time they got together, the tape was rolling. So that's what I did for Paul. You know, Donovan's perspective is he needed people to be like, he needed people who could keep up with him. Yeah, That's right. That's right. And, and this is not to celebrate Paul. It's just to, to say that in this story, the way it's been told that John had to go off to be creatively inspired is insane because a, Paul is creatively inspired. B, John and Paul spark off each other. And to your point, John is also coming with lots of great ideas. John is stepping up and equally engaged. I mean, there's been a lot made of the fact that John's like writing output at this point was quite low compared mm -hmm. to Paul and even compared to George probably. I, I think that there's constantly a conflating of productivity and quality. You know, I personally don't judge John in any way as less creative because he has fewer songs. The songs that John brings from 67 onwards are genius and amazing. So that never figures into my equation. In fact, you know, there's there's this common perception about the fact that Paul was more dominant as of 66 and, and John was more dominant prior to that. But in terms of quality of what they were writing, I think that they were both consistently brilliant throughout the Beatles. I mean, I love John's songs. What John brings to these sessions is amazing. The songs he does bring are great songs, um, mm -hmm. but look at his contributions outside of songwriting during this period. And it really, it's really clear during the film. Um, he is really, I mean, his guitar playing during this period is some of John Lennon's best guitar playing that you'll yes. ever hear, um, yes. which is a point that we've actually spoken about before. Yes, which you'll hear. You know, yes, exactly. Yes. Like we, we said it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've, I've highlighted specific, you know, his playing on Get Back and other things as well yep. from this yep. period. And, and now people are coming out and saying, 
goodness, John Lennon could play the guitar, hey? You know, right, like we didn't right. we didn't know this, right? Yeah. And you see it in the film. He's so he's so um, uh, invested in making Paul's songs good. You know, right. he he he's he's not just taking. It's not like he's all right. You know, don't let me down and dig a pony and stuff. He's all in, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. he's off doing something else during right. Paul's songs. He's he's right in there. Both, you know, to working out his harmonies and yep. and making sure the singing's really good, yeah. and um, you know, he's uh, contributing to arrangement ideas, and even just like when Billy Preston comes in, you know, the excitement that that you can see from him, um, it's just all all of it. It's not just about the songs he brings. It's every so because you know, it's not just about John's ego as well. You know, it's not like John will will creatively contribute when it's about him but no. then take a back seat when that's it's not. That's right. That's not and, the case. And that's what you hear a lot too is yeah. that, you know, they were only interested in their own songs. You can see that they are all interested in each other's song. I mean, uh, you know, there's a quote by John Dunbar who said that he watched – John going through Paul's songs to make sure that he there wasn't something he could fix to make them better. The two of them saw each other's music almost like their own. There is a little bit of ego. And I think this is the problem between Lennon and McCartney is when ego came in, actually. Yeah. And you, you do see an element of that brewing here. And, you know, slights and jealousies play into what's going on here. But it's much less of an issue than... I well, think yeah, like, to believe. I, I, I'm not saying that there that there weren't problems with ego. Not yeah, saying yeah, that yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you actually see it in the film, like you know, it's there. But I'm just saying that it's it. John's contribution creatively was not all about him, uh, despite no. what we've been led to believe. Nor was know? Paul McCartney's, you know, right, which is also right. what we'd be Definitely led to not. believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I th- I mean, I think that's less of a trope. I think. Um, you can't you can't deny Paul's contributions to other people's songs because you're just not listening if you try and claim that he doesn't contribute well to other people's songs. But yeah, so I, I think I think no, people but, say no, that less. I, yeah, yeah, go on, well, go on. No, but but you hear a lot that Paul was pushing his own songs, and you know you'd have to do twenty yeah. Paul songs, and that's not yes. what we see either. We see Paul, in fact, going up to John saying, where are some songs? Like, he wants them to be bringing yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which, yeah, exactly. Which also, um, John talks about how we were all just yeah, sidemen yeah, yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. And this, you know, that's clearly not not the case because Paul's, yeah, asking John for songs and he wants to work on George's songs. Even John, at one point, uh, says he wants to work on one of George's, you know, some yeah, of George's yeah. songs, like which is another, another little sort of truism, you know, that's that's maybe not right. Is about John being totally dismissive of George's work during this period as well. I mean, I'm sure there's there is some truth to that, but um, I think basically as a band, they were a lot more cohesive and mutually sort of invested invested i think than, they, than, i think that's the yeah. biggest word they are mm. all still invested yeah yeah well and then then there's another issue that like in this bbc interview um where the interviewer asks john he's like do you mind that people read into your songs and john is like uh no because 
there are a lot of layers to the song. I'm paraphrasing here, but, um, you know, he talks about the fact that like songs do operate at multiple levels. And sometimes he and Paul see things in each other's songs that the other didn't even know it was just coming out of them. So I think that they speak unconsciously a lot through their music. It's just the old Beatle talk. John, does it bother you at all that your songs are taken on so many different levels as far as interpretations are concerned? No, because they, they are on all those levels, you know. Mm. Excuse me, I feel a bit sick. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, they work on, on all levels, uh, and then sometimes you don't realize what you've written till after you've recorded it, or even a year later, you know. I hear old records of ours and see things on different levels suddenly, or I'll sing a, a song to Paul and he'll see it on a, a level that I haven't seen at all, you know, and that'll be the, the subtlest level you could see, see it on. And even though I've written it and somewhere in my soul knows whatever makes you write it like that, is aware of what, what it said, you're not always aware at the time of doing it. But also, there's a lot of code going on in this period that I think a surface level reading of this, you wouldn't necessarily read into. And, um, you know, here's a quote from John in 1967. He says that we talk in code to each other as Beatles. We always did that when we had so many strangers around us on tours. We never really communicated with other people. We understood each other. It doesn't matter about the rest. Talking is the slowest form of communication. Music is much better. So I think another thing when you're looking at this is that we have to be aware of how much they're communicating through songs, through playing, you know, I, like I feel like there is an entire conversation going on with what they're playing back and forth, yeah. what songs they're being drawn to, as well as the themes in their songs and what they're communicating through the themes of your songs, which we need to talk about as well. So I think that that provides another level of, nuance to what's going on. So that's all to say that, you know, I was getting frustrated with hearing Peter Jackson when they're talking about like, Paul's so sad watching, you know, John needs to go and do something else. That's to underestimate what a vital life force Paul McCartney was and how much the other Beatles saw him that way. I mean, John and Paul are an epic, create a partnership in some ways because the energy was always there and it was so intense on both sides. I mean, we just have to stop with this bullshit that, you know, Paul looked up to John and John loved and looked up to Paul every bit as much as Paul did to John. That's why the relationship is fascinating. There well, was I mean, this, just, yes. Like anyone who knows anything about John Lennon knows that he simply would not have put up with Paul if he didn't feel the way you're talking about. When I say put up with Paul, I mean he wouldn't have stayed as his number one creative partner for as long as he did. And he wouldn't have talked about Paul the way he talked about Paul for the rest of his life. I mean, you know, like John was disparaging of everybody except for Paul McCartney. You know, you can hear him uh, talk shit about anyone from Dylan to Elvis, you know, his own heroes, to anyone who was contempt, you know, Mick Jagger, whatever, but, and George and, and everyone. But, you know, there's that interview where he says, you know, the only two 
partners I've ever chosen in my life were Paul McCartney and Yoko Ono, you know, and he goes on to sort of almost absolve himself of choosing George and Ringo, you know, like, you know, someone else chose them. The only guy I chose was Paul McCartney. And he's so, he's proud of that, you know, and this is John Lennon we're talking about who thought he was better than everybody else, except for Paul. Right, right. You know? This is the this is the like he calls Paul extraordinary. Nineteen, uh, you know, yeah, with the word association. The, the list, but, but, yeah. but I want to. But the problem with that is that is still some of John fronting, and it's so difficult to untangle this because he says there that the only two partners he ever chose, which plays into the story that he went from Paul, and when he got bored, he left Paul for Yoko, and John and Yoko no, were. No, no, I'm not criticizing. I'm just no, like... No, no. I, so I, I'm, I'm, I was just going to say, I, I agree. I, like the point I was making, you know, I mean, I agree with you that that's problematic and that that's John sort of talking shit in some ways. But I, I just mean the point that he would even speak of, about Paul in, in that way at that time while he's dismissing everybody else in the world is just, I'm just saying that in itself is a is a snapshot of how you know John f- regards Paul. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. I agree with you. Like this is this is John in 1980 being so proud that exactly. he chose Paul. But everything, the whole way that we talk about Lennon and McCartney, like when we say that John wouldn't have put up, it that suggests that the power is always in John's hands. This is the way they're spoken about. And I think that's wrong in that like a lot of the upheaval in the Beatles is from John getting insecure. We do know in 1980, John talks about the fact that in 1968, he didn't know why Paul didn't leave. He thought that Paul might have been thinking about it, which suggests that from John's perspective, he sees Paul as the ultimate partner. Paul sees John this way. It's like our whole way of talking about Lennon and McCartney is to position John having the power, and I don't think that that is true. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I, I know what you're saying. I, I think that John actually did have the power over everybody else in his life other than Paul. And and I, I think the reason people talk that way about, you know, using language like, you know, he wouldn't have put up or whatever, is because John's character, John's personality, from all accounts, was one where like putting Paul aside for a minute and talking about everybody else, anybody else, um, he was in, you know, he led the dynamic in, in the relationship, you know, like John had the pad, that power over people where he would dictate the terms of their relationship. Right. That's how we've come to understand John Lennon. Now, whether that's true or not, I, I don't know, but we hear, obviously we hear him, doing all the fronting that he does yeah, yeah, throughout yeah. the 70s in the interviews and stuff. And we we hear him talk in a way that is seems consistent with this idea where he is, you know, he positions himself as basically better than everybody else. Um, and uh, he's very cutting in the way he talks about various people. But I think that that he wasn't like that with Paul, you know, not because he gave Paul special treatment, but because Paul and he were equals and they had that over each other. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't this thing of like, oh, uh, you know, I'll treat Paul differently to everyone else. It was just that 
Paul had the power over him that nobody else did. Right. You know? Yeah. Like Paul says, I had to boss John around and he liked it. Like, you know, I think let it be is unusual in that Paul is very careful with John. And that's why I think that knowing about the, the heroin thing is important too, because yeah. it's not that Paul's afraid of John. I think he's worried about John partly. Yeah. And so, and then I think that the take is that, okay, so maybe sometimes John allowed himself to be bossed around by Paul, but then, you know, Yoko took over. And I don't think that's the case either. I think that is a result of John being so afraid mm. that he then finds this other person in his life. He says this, that he used Yoko to find some safety. So it's not a matter of he got bored of the relationship with Paul. It's that he got fearful. Yep. And this period finds us in the middle ground where John has regained some power because all of a sudden, you know, John has brought Yoko in. There's a certain element of triangulation going on where yeah. Paul is unbalanced by all of a sudden having Yoko in, in the studio, which unnerves him. John is very good at power dynamics like that. But then Paul also has Linda. And so this whole thing that is going on between John and Paul is not a matter of Yoko coming in. It's a matter of John being afraid bringing in Yoko, Paul being unnerved, and things spiraling between them. Right. They're always playing games because they're so important to each other. And they're sensitive artists that don't really communicate. Yep. You know, they have this mind-creative-soul connection. And in some ways, they define each other and drive each other because they are mirrors to each totally. other. So it's not that John is leaving Paul for Yoko because fundamentally Paul and John have a different relationship. Yep. It's more that something happened between them. I, I suspect it has something to do with being primary to each other. You know, at some point, maybe John just needed to be reassured that he was the most important person in Paul's world, that Paul thought the world of him. Or John may have felt like he wasn't getting enough attention or wasn't appreciated enough or needed to be more creatively romanced or, you know, felt rejected or was hurt in some way. We don't know. But the thing is that Yoko is not the root cause of the fracture. Right. You know, she's not driving the situation. Their partnership, their relationship continues regardless. Although I do think that uh, Yoko is potentially weaponized by John and used as a wedge to create a slight separation between John and Paul to ensure that John doesn't get too close to Paul or doesn't get hurt. Yep. It's a subtle but important distinction because it speaks to causation and also the idea that Yoko uh, came in and just is taking John away suggests that John's attention left Paul and that the relationship with Paul was over. And I think it continues on both sides forever. I agree. You know, it's it's Paul and John interacting with each other for the rest of their life because their bond is based on something different than what Paul has with Linda or John has with Yoko. And so Yoko and Linda are elements, but they're also elements that John and Paul use against each other and weaponized John more so than Paul, I think. Yep. 
I, I agree. I think it makes sense because John, we know that John was was all his life was afraid of abandonment. Yeah. And it go, you know, we know that that goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, and I, you know, I think that um, throughout John's life, I think he had a series of people who he depended on completely and tr- and sort of treated as sort of a mother figure, mm-hmm. you know, and I think Paul was one of them. That his and father figure. Yeah, and father figure, exactly. Well, I think he rolled those two yeah, yeah. roles into, into Paul, into Mimi, into yep. Yoko, into May in some ways, yep. you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree that, like, his relationship with Paul is different to all of those because it encompasses a whole other area um, and a whole other dynamic. You know, they were so much more than one thing to each other. They fulfilled um, a, a, a bunch of different needs for each other. Right, you know? right. Yoko's not a replacement for Paul. Linda's not a replacement for John. Paul and John's relationship continues. It never dies. It continues. It morphs throughout the 70s. But it's like John positions it as I went from Paul, which is weird in itself because he's comparing Paul to his wife. You know, he suggests that it went from one to the other. And it's like, no, John, you traded a creative partnership for a love relationship but the way it's always positioned is that it's a creative issue. Yeah, but but uh, see, this also makes me wonder that when John said that, when he said, you know, I went from a, a boat called Paul to a boat called Yoko, whatever yeah. it was, um, see, that doesn't scan to me as saying, you know, I, I, I replaced one creative partner with another because that's not – what that that's not what Yoko's not his creative partner. I mean, right. she, they have a creative partnership to some degree, yep. but it's but but didn't replace no. one partnership. You know, the only way that statement makes any sense is if Paul was more than a creative partner that's to right. John. That's right. right. Which he was. Right. Yes. So I think ultimately what John is saying is, I wrapped everything up. That's right. In Paul. Yes. And then I wrapped everything up in Yoko. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the only way it makes sense because, you know, I think like so if we look at the relationships from the kind of dominant narrative perspective, right, so you might say, okay, well, John and Paul's relationship was, you know, 90% creative and yeah. 10% yeah. personal or whatever. Uh, and Yoko's was vice versa, yeah, right? Yeah. So, okay, that th- th- that's not a replacement. You know, y- Yoko's, his relationship with Yoko doesn't replace his relationship with Paul because they they have completely different um, emphases, Yes, right? that's right, yes. So we know with John that he tends to want one, you know, he, he wants one person yes, to fulfill to everything. everything. Yes. To be everything to him. And I think that that's really what he's saying when he talks about going from Paul to Yoko. He to, he's not saying I creatively went from Paul to Yoko. He's saying my person was right. Paul and then my person was that's Yoko. Right. And that's, that's right. An no, I, I agree. 
that's a really important point is that like my world was Paul yeah. and then my world became Yoko. And, but I think it's red when he's like, I've only had two partners. It's taken as creative. I had a partner. Yes. It's taken as a creative thing. But again, when you see this film and you say that, well, Paul wasn't creatively boring and I think that you can see that the emotional bond there is still with Paul. You can st- see that the creative bond is still there with with Paul. So if he jumped from Paul to Yoko, then it was for a different reason. It wasn't necessarily an issue of Paul not being enough for John. I think it was a matter of what John needed at that point. Not creatively boring during this period, but even more so than that, you know, even if you wanted to argue, say, that John wanted a different creative outlet at this yeah, point, yeah, yeah. you know, he wanted yeah. to do Be on more. a stage in a bag, yeah. Yeah, right. Then even if you wanted to argue that, you still see in this film how creatively invested John is in yes. what they're doing. Right? Yes. So it does, yes. still doesn't scan, right? So yeah. um, I think that the only way to see it is that Yoko fulfilled something for John that Paul that 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 Paul couldn't and it's not a creative thing that's that's, right. that's, that's the only kind of logical explanation but uh, I mean you guys have covered this in in no, but detail, I, well we have but but you and I have talked about this like you know he talks about this in 72 when he talks about the fact that yeah. you know maybe he and his partner could have continued if they would have had a, a relationship or, you know, however he says this. Whoever yes, that yes, may have been. Whoever, you know, his many partners. <laughs> the anonymous partner. <laughs> yeah. So that maybe they could have, maybe that would have satisfied it, suggesting that he was looking for that element of closeness. Because in the context that, that he's speaking at this time is the benefits of being with Yoko. And, and he's saying that, you know, the advantage is that he gets to hold hands and go home with her. Yeah. And then he... He quickly says, maybe that would have satisfied it with my other partnerships, with the other men I worked with. And so I suspect what he's saying is that that's what he needed at the time. Maybe, you know, that would have helped with his partnership um, in that that might have made him feel more reassured if they were closer, you know, if, if they were spending all their time, maybe that would have alleviated some of the competitiveness, the ego, the people that got between them, you know? Yeah. But I do think that's a really interesting statement because that's John in 1972 still trying to diagnose what happened between him and Paul, you know, and and his solution is maybe it would have satisfied it for him if they were closer, you know? Totally. But then he quickly says that because of who we are, you know, that couldn't happen. So they're at at an impasse. I agree. I think at this point he needed more of something. Yep. I think John was grappling with this idea of what what he want what 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 do I want you know it's like is it is is it intimacy is it romance is it creativity is it all of those things bundled into one person that will can satisfy have, me yes yeah can I can I have all of that in one person and he was a searcher you know, and, and, and he was searching for that. And I think he had it with Paul and he didn't know what that meant and what he, exactly what he wanted. I feel that it's more that John didn't actually know what he wanted and, (laughs) and, and, you know, like obviously everything's speculative because we don't know what went on between them. Yeah. I think that John was looking, he was unsatisfied with 
something in his life. Yeah, exactly. And I think that because he was always looking for more, yeah. more intimacy, yep. more oneness with yes. somebody, yes. he didn't know what that looked like. And, you know, he was married with Cynthia and he had Julian and he had that whole sort of life. And yeah. then he had Paul who was yeah. really his person. And I yes, think yes. he struggled to know and understand what to do with that. That's the problem is he may not have been able to articulate or even have understood it himself, which probably made it infinitely more confusing to Paul. Yeah, exactly. Well, also he has an addictive personality, which is yes. probably playing into this too, is Paul probably exactly. gave him a lot. Yeah. I dig a pygmy by Charles Hawtrey on the Deaf Aids. Phase one in which Doris gets her oats. The point of us discussing all of this up front, you know, beyond going off on a massive tangent, is that I think that all of this is playing into the situation. We're sort of thrown into this film without any background. I mean, Jackson does provide a bit of a Beatles 101 right at the beginning. You know, we don't, it's kind of like stuff that happened in their life. It's like, you know, and the events of the Beatles rather than any sense of the dynamics that have been going on. And in truth, you know, the, the disruption of the Beatles, the, you know, a year ago in early 1968, this is when they've just finished the book with Hunter Davies and they're all in and they're going to India together, you know, and John is still married. Paul is still engaged. Like there's been quite a lot of upheaval in the past year. And I think just looking at this as a three week period and not knowing any of that is confusing because there's so much under the surface that I, I don't think that you can read properly what's going on. I mean, it's still difficult to read what's going on, but it's hard to read without knowing what's gone on in the past uh, six or eight months, right? And so you can see when Michael Lindsay Hogg talks to John about an hour and a half into the first episode, you know, how things aren't quite what they were between you and you and Paul and mm. that it's it, it's not quite as easy as it was. And John, you know, he asked John and John sort of is about to answer him when Michael, you know, cuts him off, of course. And um, then he asked John or he says to John, well, you know, this might be a good opportunity to heal whatever the wound is. And John says, yes, I was thinking that. And so... This suggests that something happened, you know, and we don't know that the viewer, if you're just coming in and you don't know much about the Beatles, you don't know that there's, that this is not what Paul and John are usually like, right? Yeah. And this is like a flag that something has occurred. And actually later on, when we hear George Martin talking to George Harrison, he says, you know, he's very enthusiastic and he's like, things are going well. You guys are seeing each other. You're hearing each other. You're looking at each other which suggests that they were not doing that before. Yeah, there's a lot of small but significant references to like a, a Rocky White album, I, I found. That, that That's one of the big things I took away from, from watching this was the little speckles of reference. Like, you know, there's, there's that bit when George Harrison 
um, talks to Paul about his role in. Oh, he actually, I think he says, we, you know, it should really be like, we, what does he say? Like, we should really be contributing to each other's songs as if, yeah, I love as that. If we wrote, as if they're our, our own. Um, and then he talks about, he makes a comment, which I can't remember word for word, but it's something to the effect of, you know, the, the, the last record, which was obviously yes. the White Album, yes. was, was the first time George felt really involved. Um, well, I think that's part of the fallout of Lennon and McCartney. Because because there was a fracture between Lennon and McCartney, there was the opportunity for George to have more space and to step up more. And so in that period, he was able to flourish. And then at this point, when Lennon and McCartney are attempting to repair, I think all of a sudden, you know, he's saying he wants what I had before, but while Lennon and McCartney start to repair and come back together, it's like George starts to be pushed out again. And I think that's incredibly hard for for George, right? It's it's very difficult. I think that it's it might be doable for George to inhabit that space. If Lennon McCartney were super tight and not threatened and not having problems, it probably would be okay for George to be like that. But while Lennon and McCartney are rocky and trying to repair their own relationship, well, you, you know, know, it's it's funny because. That also makes me think of a very interesting moment, intriguing moment in the lunchroom conversation um, where John makes reference to uh, a time in the past where he went to George and involved George in his own song because he felt that he couldn't go to Paul because right. Paul was being too something I, I dominant, dominant yes. or bossy or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. which was interesting. I want. I, I sort of wondered whether that was talking about, um, you know, the revolver. Was it? She said. She said. I think. Where, yeah, yeah. Where, he, Paul actually referenced. She said. She said. Right. Okay. There you go. So uh, that was interesting because that was an, another example of George kind of getting a foot in the door when yeah. John and Paul are not yes. okay. Yes. I mean, I, this is my theory is that for the Beatles to work and George to have equal partnership requires Lennon McCartney to not be strong or else Lennon McCartney becomes strong and George doesn't have equal footing. It's well, I guess a conundrum, uh, I think. Uh, that's interesting. Cause then, you know, fast forward six months and there's the, 4442 meeting, which kind of suggests, again, that George gets an equal stake, I suppose, Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, that obviously, you know, it's interesting, the semantics of 444, which separates John and Paul. It's not 84, it's 444. so, uh, you know, again, that's that suggestion of, well, we're separating John and Paul and then George comes up to their level. Right, right. And I, I, I think that, you know, old school narrative people, um, I think that a jean jacket would be like, see, because at that, that time, John actually said he was like, we'll just call them Lennon and McCartney. And, you know, and Paul rejects it. Like, he doesn't want that Beatles. Yeah. It's but not the Beatles. I can't, 
That's not the beat because that's not the Beatles. But also, yeah. I don't think that John really wants that Beatles either. I think that John is on a mission at that point to hurt Paul, you know, because John never goes back and goes, I wanted to do this. You know, he just he doesn't. Wow. And he's so upset when Paul leaves and willing to go, you know, within six months, willing to do the Beatles all over again. If Paul asked him, I just think that John got really messed up about Paul for a while. But you're right. Like that is an example of where the Beatles <laughs> that I think for George to fully come into his own and have equal space requires Lennon and McCartney to be separated. Lennon and McCartney to be separated means it's not really the Beatles. And you can see John and Paul at this point, like, really, are they are they ever not going to work together? So, you know, based on the wound <laughs> that um, Michael and Zee hug flags and John says that yes he was thinking that this might be an opportunity to fix it you know the breakup series started with the idea that the the, the breakup had to do with a fracture between Lennon and McCartney that there was a fallout between the two and that sort of started things spiraling and they didn't mean for it to end up where it did but you know it was basically a situation where there is an issue between the two of them and um, they start reacting to each other and things spiral out of control. And, you know, it's we went in believing in this deep bond between John and Paul. There's an absolute ton uh, of evidence to support this. And it, it's weird to me that that kind of has kind of been lost. You know, we dug up um, uh, quotes from people like Tony Barrow saying that John and Paul loved each other more than most couples do. And when they split, it was more wrenching than most divorces. Or Alistair Taylor saying that, you know, for, forget what happened later at the time of the Beatles, John and Paul were closer than any two men I've ever known. Or George Martin saying that up to the last moment, there was a great love between the two men that's very difficult to understand. And so like all these people that were very close to them are Cynthia Lennon saying that, you know, that John just had this bond with Paul that he didn't have with anybody else. Or, you know, everybody that was really close to them that knew them claimed they had this incredible bond. And it was John Lennon that started using the term of marriage, like his real marriage was with Paul and the Beatles, you know, and he used that throughout the 70s. So our perspective was to say, well, let's look at what happened um, to start this spiraling. So we what we did was we dated it all the way back to early 1968. Um, and we went back and said, look, this is probably, you know, the roots probably go back even further than that, but this is when things started to spiral. And at the end of the year, John talks to Jonathan Cott from Rolling Stone, and Jonathan Cott says, you know, okay, it's been a big year, and, and you know, do you feel better? And John goes, in a way, you know, in a way better and in a way worse. And so it's like John's really reordered his life tremendously. He has done some activities with Yoko on the side. They've started doing heroin. They've had a miscarriage. Like it's been a lot of drama in six months. But now both men who used to be epically close are kind of separated and they've got their own weird dynamics going on. And I think that he's ended the year sort of going, okay, I changed my situation but I don't necessarily know if it's better. You know, if we look at this as a marriage, how I always think of it is, you know, if this is a family, the Beatles are a family, John and Paul are the married couple within it. 
And um, I use that metaphor because John used that metaphor. And I think what happened is Paul kind of at this period in London where he started going out, I think he started to take his eyes off John at a time when John was very, very needy. Like John was the spouse that was both mercurial and needy when Paul was being celebrated and learning new things and is, thinks he's committed. But John doesn't see it that way. John's like, fine, you're going to go off and have flings with George Martin and Donovan and be, you know, with the avant-garde scene. Brings in Yoko. Like, well, pay attention to me. I could leave. All of a sudden, Paul gets nervous, like, whoa, what's happening? And then I think that he takes John too seriously and says, oh, John's not happy and is going to leave. Then he brings in Linda. And then they end up at this situation where it's kind of like, well, what about our marriage? And in the meantime, we've got George and Ringo. There are other people in this family that kind of have gone like, hey, we're cooler than you guys now. And you don't even notice because you're so busy focusing on each other. So anyways, I think at the end of this year, and again, this has only been like six or eight months, John is kind of going like, I wasn't happy where I was at. I got Yoko, but I don't want the Beatles to be done. You know, Michael Lindsay Hogg says this, that John said to him, I don't want to not be a Beatle. So I think John is coming back after having a good performance on the White Album, having done some stuff with Yoko, he's getting lots of attention. And I think they're just coming back kind of going, well, what, what do we do now? And the reason I say all this is I think this has a lot of implications to George in that in some ways, I think some of the falling out with George comes from the, the, the issue that Lennon and McCartney aren't writing together like they used to. Like in Sgt. Pepper, you know, when they would go home, you know, they would say that they would write and then bring stuff into the studio and present it to the other Beatles. And, and I think because there's some issue between Lennon and McCartney, they're not just going to Paul's house or John's house anymore. The two of them, they've got Yoko there. We know Paul is saying that he doesn't love working from scratch anymore. So maybe they have to start writing in the studio together with the other two there. And that's not super conducive to, you know, like all of a sudden George is starting to jump in. And, and Paul's like, no, I need to figure out the song first. And so then you get this weird clash where they're doing it in front of George and George wants to participate. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, John, um, John's bringing in Yoko during the White Album and all that, like it's just a protection, you know. I feel like John, you know, John has kind of, is going through this process of like reinventing himself yes. dur during that time, you know, and, but, but, you know, as you say, he's not, he's sort of not fully committed to the reinvention. He's, he's sort of still it's got just in, case. in each. Yes, yeah, yeah yes. exactly. But, but well, I, he says I, that for safety. Yeah. Right. And I think, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure whether he was angry with Paul or whether he was actually just, um, hurt by whatever it was, by whatever the issue was, whether it was not being seen enough by yes. Paul or whether it was something more specific than that or whether That's something what I mean happened by or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I just wonder whether, is it more just like, okay, well, Paul is off doing this. So I need armor. He I think so. He now needs Yoko. Um, because he needs somebody, he needs yes. his, you know, he needs his person. You know, when I talk about provocation, 
I don't think John is doing any of this consciously. It's more the way John tells it later, like at the end of, uh, in September, 1969, is he was going through murder and felt like shit. And Paul was confident. And Yoko came in and said, I respect your genius. Like all of a sudden yeah. he's got somebody who's supportive of him. And we know that John wrote the song, Look at Me, while in India. He wants attention. And I think that if he thinks that if he doesn't, stay exciting, charismatic, magnetic. Like John always finds a way to stay on people's radars because if he loses that, they could walk away. So I think that John pulled out the stops to have somebody there in case Paul walked away. And again, you know, that seems crazy to us to think that Paul would walk away. But in 1980, John said, it seemed like Paul, I don't know why he didn't walk away. It seemed like he just wanted to do things on his own. And then he, he sort of hypothesizes maybe he didn't feel strong enough or I don't know why he didn't leave. But this idea that John is thinking that Paul may be thinking about Well, he leaving. also talks about, you know, McCartney, the album, and he says, oh, you know, Paul's been, Paul's been rehearsing for this for, for a couple of years now. That's yeah. right. So he brings in Yoko. I also think that John, again, is like, you know, it is a form of triangulation. I think that John does this to unsettle Paul constantly. He brings in some, you know, Stu Sutcliffe he has in the band. I don't think John does this purposely, but John always has but a little gang. It's, 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 you know, it could be a little bit of both, you know, it could be partly conscious, yep. but not fully, you know, like he, he's, he's using it as a strategy to protect himself Yes. And also in the process or, you know, it's like a bit of a chicken and egg really, but unsettling Paul and grabbing Paul's attention is a form of self-preservation, you know? That's right. I talked to Amy Mann and she, you know, has a similar background to John. And she says that John has to be this charismatic because he wants people to be bound to him. And I think that period in, in, in 68, the first half of 68, he gets unsettled, I think, that Paul could leave, whether it's for Jane Asher or Linda or whether it's just to go have his own career, just the idea that the person he counts on most could leave. And and Brian dies as well, you know. So, so you know, so like it's like he doesn't have Brian to, to, to you know, to protect him or to, to sort of raise him up or whatever. Um, and... So, like, if he's losing Paul and he's lost Brian at the same time, you know, he, yeah, he, yeah, it's like he he needs something. He needs somebody strong. So, so first, it's Maharishi. You know, it's, yes, it's like, all right, you know, let's go. We're going to India, um, and um, and then that doesn't work out. Yeah, for him, you know. So, and again, like, look at McCartney in 1967. McCartney is. He drove, you know, he drove Sgt. Yeah, Pepper and he drove Magical Mystery town, Tour. You know, he's, 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 he's the Prince of London. So as yeah. much as, you know, we don't think of Paul as being the cool one right now, he really was. And so yeah. you got to think of it from, and you know, John's perspective. He's like, well, Paul's on the rise. Like, look at, he's coming out with all of these incredible ideas. And they were very close that year. So it's not like they're not close, but I think that John sees Paul as becoming stronger and stronger getting engaged, you know, Paul and Jane were apparently talking about moving to the country. And so, you know, from John's perspective, if he's unhappy with his own marriage, 
Brian has died. He thinks that he's a jinx to men that are close to him. Maybe he convinces himself that all men leave me. And there's a reason why Paul constantly talks about this. He, he mentions it twice. Yeah, he mentions John thinking he's a jinx to men twice mm. in uh, or three times in the lyrics book. It's kind of yeah. like he understands that John has a fear of men leaving him. So that's all to say that like all of this has happened like within a year, like exactly a year earlier, Cynthia Lennon you says that to. you seem to need them more than they need you. So he's really all in. He said when he was, you know, in, in Spain, he couldn't wait to get back to the Beatles, to his buddies. Now he's gone through this period with Yoko. But I think that, you know, having been with the Beatles for 11 years by this time, it's like a, a marriage has is going through a rocky period, which is what Ringo is referring to. Like, just don't think we're over because, you know, we're going, we've been grumpy for 18 months. But I think it's more serious between Lennon and McCartney because I think McCartney got confused by Yoko. And now he may have taken John too seriously. I don't know. I can't quite work out where Paul's at. I think Paul veers from saying, guys, let's all get back in, get your enthusiasm. We're the Beatles. Let's go big. And sort of saying, okay, if we're going out, if we're not going to go big, let's go out with a big bang. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, cause that's one thing I try to reconcile is Paul when, you know, he pitches this idea of them, like the news, like this yeah. news, you know, and he's like, and at the end, the Beatles break up. And he seems okay with this idea. I'm sure he's not. Well, cool he's, he's, it, but. he's, he's trying. I mean, it's such an interesting moment, isn't it? He uh, Is he like, I, I sort of wonder, is he really pitching that? Is that, a, is that a genuine pitch? He kind of waits for a reaction and doesn't really yeah. get one. Um, well, I get, and, think he gets one from and, Ringo. Yeah, he gets it, well, yeah, it's sort of a half reaction. And and then Paul kind of smirks afterwards, you know, like as if to say like, come on, guys, you know, like laugh with me about this. Or I don't know whether whether he was sort of serious about it. I think but, serious. You know, I mean, I, I do as well. I think one, one thing with Paul is that he – uh, he wants to, you know, he may have spent the night thinking, okay, so this might be over. This might be coming to an end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. all right, well, you know, like, as you said, in the face of adversity, Paul's reaction always is yeah. to get to work. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so, all right, if the Beatles are going to be over, let's let's get to work. Let's, you know, make <laughs> something big. of it and yeah, do it, yeah. make it an artistic statement, you know, um, and it, I, I want to be careful here because I don't. I, he's not. He's not being opportunistic in a um, in a cynical PR. sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's actually just he wants to make art, you know. And yes. this is him saying, "All right, well, let's let's do it properly, you know. Like let's let's the Beatles are always do everything, you know, in a way that's ahead of the curve and yes. um, and 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 artistic and yes. yeah, exactly. So let, let's let's do this that way as well. He also, as you say, you know, is he he uses the divorce word very openly in in the um in the first part of the film. He he says, you know, well, this is what I was saying in the, in our last meeting, you know. So he's obviously floated the idea already um, about yeah. Beatles breaking up. So I think you know, I think that he, yeah, I, I think. He's also got Linda now, right? So yeah. he, I think he has the emotional stability and the yeah. um, support that he needs to be able to come to terms with 
the impending breakup if that's what's happening. And I yeah. think that probably would make it easier for him than if he didn't have Linda in the picture, you know. Um, and you can see that he uses her as a support during that, you know, like you can sort of yeah. sense that chemistry from them, I think, you know. Oh, definitely. Um, like you, you can see they're going home and talking about things. And it's interesting if Lennon and McCartney are coming back and they're, um, you know, they're like, well, we didn't mean to break up. We just wanted to get each other to pay it. Like John's like, I just wanted you to pay attention and remember how special I am and remember that I'm the best thing out there that no one compares to me. John's yeah. like, and look what I just did on the white album. I was incredible. Did you notice yeah. that? And yeah. did you see my um, two virgins cover? Look how brave I am. You know what I mean? Like, and, and rock and roll circus. And yeah. Yeah. Like, look what I could do without you, Paul. So pay attention. Yeah. Um, and then Paul is kind of like, it's just like Paul's almost got like a manic energy at this point. Not in a bad way. I just think he's just coming back kind of going, come on, guys, like, let's let's go. You know, you can kind of hear he's yeah. so frustrated. We're so good. Let's go. Yeah. Or else if we're not going to go, then let's go out in style and blow this up and I'll figure something else out. I kind of wonder, I, I, I wonder if they had broken up then, if the breakup might've been easier for Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Without almost the tease of Abbey Road. Uh, you know. Well, without Klein, because I think that Klein right. and the three against one for six months, I think was absolutely devastating to Paul yeah. because yeah. at this point they're still close. They've had a really rocky time with, with the White Album. And I know, you know, we got the White Album and we heard that things weren't as bad, but I think it's always like that with the Beatles. Um, when they start playing, they have an incredible chemistry. So I think that, you know, it was probably up and down with the White Album, but it was very different. I think that that's the first album where they're having like major issues. And so I wonder from John Lennon's perspective, if he's coming back saying, and I really do believe this, I don't think that John, you know, has blown everything up because he wants to be out. He doesn't want to go back to the what he was like eight months earlier, where he felt like he was shitty and losing his any kind of leadership role, any of those things that he might have been feeling at that time, which I only know because John Lennon told us. Yeah. Um, you know, that I, I don't think he wants to go back to that, but I don't think he necessarily wants to go. And so that's why, you know, I've tried to reconcile at, in this period. You see John is so connected to Paul and is trying. Like you see him looking at Paul, like even in part one, you know, after day two or day three, their chemistry is really getting warmed up again and they're bouncing off each other. And then, you know, by the time that they're doing like Commonwealth they're having yeah, fun yeah. or two of us, they're having fun. Like they get up to stand and, and sing it together, you know, standing up at the on microphone. One mic, right? Like yeah, what's, yeah. what's the deal with that? <laughs> and that's actually, I wish he hadn't cut that because John gets crazy in that one. Like he's so into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's kind of the day that George walks out is you and I talked about that is that, um, I do agree with Jackson. Like, I think that Jackson did this montage where all of a sudden it looks worse than it is. But I do think that it's not just a professional thing. I think it's also an interpersonal thing where George always gets locked out of the marriage of Lennon and McCartney. And Lennon and McCartney are kind of like, now that John's like, well, I didn't mean like, I wanted attention, but I'm not quite leaving yet. And Paul's like, oh, okay, well, let's see what we can do. You know, and they're starting to warm up to each other. All of a sudden, George 
gets locked out again. And I was thinking about it. Like, I don't think he dislikes George's songs. I just think he's primarily focused on repairing things with John. So it's not a personal thing to George. It's like, we got a thing that we got to figure out. That's my take. Yeah. 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 I, I agree. But I, I think there's more that there are other complicating factors. Like I think when George tries to talk to Paul about being involved in each other's songs, I, I, I don't think Paul gives him much of a response there. He just sort of, you know. Why do you, and why do you think that is? Uh, yeah. Well, well, pr- probably for the same reason, probably because he's thinking, well, yeah, but, you know, John and I have this thing happening, you know, so. Um, or, or, well, it's, or, pra- it's practical too. It's hard to have what, three people. Yeah, it's practical. It's practical. Well, you know, Paul. I don't know. What is Paul thinking? I mean, in that scene, it actually looks a bit like Paul's not even really listening to George. You know, which yeah. might be George might be annoyed about that. In you know, afterwards, I don't know. But um, yeah, maybe Paul is thinking, yeah, well, that's a great idea in theory, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like we know, Paul is naturally authoritative in the studio he he knows mm-hmm. what he wants very quickly mm-hmm. uh and um there also you know there's a reference in the lunchroom scene where john makes some sort of comment about how paul isn't like there was a time when we couldn't say anything about your arrangements mm-hmm. you, you know you know the one yep. i mean that, yep, um they do and uh, so, you know, maybe Paul doesn't like other people trying to direct his songs. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I like that scene because I love the fact that they're all really relaxed there and they're just talking, you know, and George is kind of like in a chatty mood. What's interesting to me is that even though Paul's very relaxed and sort of only kind of half paying attention, I don't take it like it doesn't read as arrogant to me because George is unbothered by this situation. You know what I mean? Like it's almost like two brothers or two family members talking to each other where they're there and you know the other person's listening. And so you're just chatting in a way to me. And that's how it reads to me. You know, if George looked annoyed that they weren't paying attention, I might actually think that Paul was being arrogant, but George doesn't. He, you know, is completely into what he's saying and he's talking, he's talking to Paul, you know, he's turning to him and he actually champions every little thing, you know, which is Paul's song. And George is saying like, I want us to, to think of our songs as our own or that we love each other's songs. And I think Paul's probably like, well, John and I think of each other's that way. And don't, don't we always think of our songs like that? I don't, I don't know. My take on that situation comes from George. And George is, you know, George is just chatting away. And John's participating, yep. you know. So, um, also, Paul and George both look amazing in that scene, by the way. Um, but again, you know, in the cafeteria scene, Paul talks to John and he says, um, I mean, this isn't in the film, but this is in the audio. And Paul says to John, um, I've been watching, I've been listening. And so I don't think Paul's not listening. He, it just could be that he doesn't know what to say to George. I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe Paul's being a bit of a bastard or maybe he's like trying to just wants to protect the, the status quo. But I, I don't take it as badly as that, specifically because of George's reaction. I think Paul and George have a closeness that kind of goes unrecognized. But 
anyways. Paul also does a lot of sort of um, multitasking in, in like he's often at the piano playing and listening to like someone's talking to him and he's playing the piano and kind of half responding at the same time. Yeah. George says while they're doing all things must pass, he says like, I don't really know what to do with this. You know, so he yeah. clearly wants help on all things must pass, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that might also be part of it is that he thinks, well, I need Paul yeah. to elevate my songs. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, maybe that's part of the motivation behind what he's saying. I don't know. Like maybe he feels like Paul and John don't put as much into his songs in terms of arrangement yeah, ideas, right? Like, well, which they you know, which George... they actually don't because no. they, you know, like when they're doing all things must pass, like Paul and John, from what we can see, like they're not really helping. They're just playing their part you know John's <laughs> at the organ just going okay what chord is it you know and he's just padding yeah. out the chords and and Paul's just kind of doing his thing you know I mean it sounds great they harmonize beautifully it's yeah you know it's, it could have been a brilliant Beatles song I yeah think. yeah um but I guess they're just sitting there going well what do you want us to do George and George is like I don't know I don't really know where to go with it and then it's like okay Paul actually does give him one suggestion, I think, where he says, oh, well, maybe we'll do do it, do this part simple the first time and then we'll add something in the second time. Do you remember that? Yeah, um, I do. I do. But yeah. Paul says that continually about all their songs. And this is yeah, what I mean true. a little bit about, I think it's a bit of like, this is an unusual situation. Uh, they've got cameras rolling, first yeah. of all, while they're writing songs, which, you know, Paul McCartney seems to be able to write sort of, but like we know for Sgt. Pepper, John stayed with Paul, according to Georgia Martin, and wrote songs or else he would come to Paul's house. They would finish the song, then go to the studio. And this was yeah. always the way with Lennon and McCartney. Here, they're doing, they're writing the songs it's like building the plane while flying, you know, and I get why Paul is like, no, let's just get them straight. I want to know what the core melody and progression is. Well, George is doing what he has to do as a lead guitarist is like, I want to make it interesting, mm. you know? And so they're each doing their own role, but this, this is what I mean. Like it's kind of a function of Lennon and McCartney not working like they used to is that now their songwriting is spilling just straight into studio time and George is there and he wants to contribute. And it doesn't work with three people. It's really, I'm sure it's incredibly hard with three people. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because John, because, you know, Paul says to George, you know, uh, let's just vamp on it until we've all got it, you know. Yeah, Um, yeah. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to just do it over and over and over and over again until they've all got the chord progression down and they and yeah. they've worked out everything. Whereas George wants to work out parts, right? But then there's another bit where Paul turns to George and says, Well, but you know, your vamping is now getting in the way of John's vamping. So just let John do the vamping. And you know, you do it. So I can see George's frustration as well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because he's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too, you know. Paul um, is, you mean? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I can't, you know, it, but I, I do think some of those conflicts are just about the two different musical personalities where, you know, Paul is such an instinctive musician. He yeah. wants to 
let things happen. He wants to jam and let things evolve the way they evolve, you know. That's also his songwriting um, brain too. He's exactly, trying to, exactly. Yeah. You see him do it when he's writing Get Back and all that stuff. Whereas George wants to sit and work it out and get it right straight away, you know, as in he wants to – He wants to. Uh, he says, you know, I can't, I'm not Eric Clapton. I can't just, um, you know, improvise – over an extended time and and just flow like that i need to sit and be methodical yeah. and and work it out and uh that's that's fundamentally you know um defining yeah and that those two approaches can't really happen at the same time you know well, so yeah. and i think you're right to your point it's that if if it's all happening in the studio if they're not coming in with ready made songs um, then there is that clash of approaches that's happening yes. in real time. You know? Right. Whereas if they come in and they're like, here's our newest song, that gives him yeah. the opportunity to go and elevate the song because they've got the bones of it already, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're not trying to learn it on the spot, you know? Right, right. Develop it. But it's interesting because, you know, that 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 conversation between John, when Paul's like, what's this chord? And it's kind of, what does he say? It's like passe. Passe, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And George passe, is like, and- it's not passe, it's a chord. A chord isn't <laughs> passe. And Paul's like, well, actually, yeah, a chord goes in and out of fashion. It, I always find it interesting watching that scene that it, George does get the chord in the end that, that he wanted. Oh, on, on. He- Although, to be fair, by that point, John's part has evolved somewhat and he's doing a kind of a differently voiced chord that's higher up in register, which does change the kind of uh, blend of those chords. Um, so it goes back and forth, I think. But anyway. That's, yeah. I mean, watching that is like Paul yeah. is talking to his songwriting partner, John, about yeah. like, remember when we did that? And I feel like George is yeah. trying to say like, well, no, it's just a chord. It's kind of like watching a couple that are like, remember when we went on that, you know, vacation somewhere and somebody is like, well, what do you mean? I was there too, you know, but it was, yeah, yeah. I guess the very difficult dynamics because Paul is talking to John saying like, remember when we wrote this thing? Cause it's very insular to their dynamic. And George is like, it's just a chord. And he's like, yeah, I know, but I'm trying to trigger, maybe John can help me because we wrote the song together, you know? And, you know, so there's just weird dynamics. I I also just, I got to say that that's, I've watched that scene a few times. Mm -hmm. And I I also think there's a big problem with the editing of that scene because Mm. um, I think I I could be, it's either that or they have a language between them that I am, that I'm not understanding because the scene is quite feels quite disjointed to me. Yeah. Where at one point they seem to be talking about when the chord is played, so whether mm-hmm. it's on the on beat or on yep, the off yep, yep. beat. Mm-hmm. Then next minute they seem to be talking about what chord it is, whether yep. it's the minor chord or just the regular yeah, seven, yeah. dominant seven chord. Uh, and then moments later, it seems to be about something else, but. There's no, there doesn't seem to be a, we don't seem to see the resolution of any of the three discussions. Like there's sort of like three distinct musical um, sort of debates happening there. And it's very confusing when you actually try and follow the argument to (laughs) see who's saying what and what they're actually arguing about and 
wh- where's it going to end up? Yeah. It, it, it actually is completely disjointed. So yeah. I, I think there's been some editing there yeah. that, again, obscures exactly what is being said. And one of the things I heard Peter Jackson say in one of his interviews is he says, um, if I ever did that, I made sure that, you know, whatever I cut didn't actually obscure the uh, the integrity. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, he might think (laughs) that that it doesn't, but I watched that scene. I've literally watched that scene like five times and tried to understand what's happening. And I just keep thinking, what's missing here? Like, and and it it probably doesn't matter, you know, but I'd still like to know how those arguments actually went so that you can follow them, you know? Yeah, I understand. You know, all of our complaints here are about his editing, but he had to make choices. So, like, this is not to say, like, basically we would complain about any cut that he did that wasn't, like, 60 hours long, right? So, so, like, this is nothing... But if you're going to, if, you know, I know what you're saying, it's nothing against Peter Jackson because he had to make cuts. But if you're going to... If you're going to show such a big chunk of specific debate about a specific musical issue in a specific song, I think you like it seems crazy to me to to then take chunks out of it that actually make it impossible to follow the narrative of the discussion. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. No, I agree with you. Like I, I know a couple of the other discussions fairly well, so I know what he cut and I don't think he saves the integrity of either of those. I, yeah. I think he changes the meaning of those. And that's, so I am saying on one hand, I get Peter Jackson and we will never be happy. On the other hand, those two were incredibly important points in the story of this as well. So to your point, like this is such a famous issue, George walking out, George's yeah. fight with Paul, that it's kind of like we needed to see the whole thing. And for musicians like yourself, you know, it does matter. Like who's being it's, unreasonable? It's frustrating. It's frustrating because uh, as a musician trying to decode the musical stuff that's going on. The, one of the biggest thrills for me watching this whole thing yeah. has been watching the musical evolution of the songs, mm-hmm. knowing what we know, you know, after the fact about how the songs ended up. It's been a real thrill for me. And I think every musician listening to this will relate to what I'm saying, that you get to hear where the songs started and, and the journey that they took to get to where they get to in the end. And that, that's been possibly the most exciting part of this film for me. And to see these little golden nuggets like yeah. the one we're talking about now and to just not quite be able to follow them is actually extremely frustrating. You know, you just well, want, I just want to know really what happened there, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, is that Peter Jackson does do a lot of editing and it's very, very seamless. Like, you know, for example, in the scene where Paul is like, and then there was two, and then there's that period of just watching him like Uh. sort of look out off into space. That's actually like Paul says, and then there was two, they laugh. They talk about Simon and Garfunkel. And then there were two. (laughs) <laughs> like there's there's a lot yeah, to that yeah, scene yeah. and that, that 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 scene is a real problem for me you know yeah. because I, i've now watched that moment and again another one i've watched like five times yeah, just yeah, yeah. to, to yeah, really try and absorb it and and i it really bothers me because this it's become 
a bit of a sub-narrative here that, oh, you know, Paul says and then there were two and then he gets all emotional and teary and stuff, yeah. you know. And I've actually even heard Peter Jackson say in an interview that he did before it was released, oh, just wait till you watch that scene, you know, you'll see yeah, yeah, Paul yeah. and it's so emotional and you'll yeah. cry and all this stuff. And it's like, and, and firstly, like something doesn't add up when you watch that scene because yeah, yeah, yeah. the general not, mood, yeah. well, exactly, right? Yeah. I just don't get it. Like he says, and then there were two, and it just doesn't seem like he's saying it in a serious way. Like no. it seems like a funny, silly yeah. throwaway comment, which g- generally matches mostly the mood of that little yeah. sitting. But then we get this close up on Paul's eyes and like, I've looked at it so many times and I've gone, is he, is he like, uh, you know, holding back tears there? I, I don't know. It, it doesn't, it doesn't read to me the way everyone seems to be reading it. Paul's you know? eyes are always kind of glossy. And I don't know if yes. it's from the, the mega wave or the, the booze that he's drinking, or he just has yeah. really glossy eyes like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or he's tired or he's smoked a joint a minute yeah, before yeah, yeah. or whatever it is, right? Like that. That little discussion where they're sitting yeah. around in a circle, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a bit of tension. George has walked out. John's not there yet. Whatever. Like they're talking, they're having a serious conversation about Yoko and about everything, but then it constantly breaks into funny little bits and you know yeah michael and z hogg is talking about the fact that you know he thought uh, he, about leaving but they wouldn't notice that he wasn't there yeah and, exactly. you know, that's and a great paul, moment and, and exactly. paul turns to linda and goes hey you be quiet yoko you know when she yeah, know. Uh, uh-huh. you know like it's it, they're just joking around really yeah yeah and paul talks about like when michael and z hogg says that he's like oh not another one on strike which again paul, yeah. you know is interesting to me he uses that term because i think that that's how he sees it is people are going on strike, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, let's also, talk about he, that. He talks about strike um, in reference to himself as well, right? Yeah. Like he he says that they're kind of going on strike about John. The working right? conditions with John and Yoko, it, yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, it's not like he's saying, oh, look, everyone's – Leave, you know, like everyone's going on strike against no, me. No, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. He's saying he's. They're all kind of striking. Yeah. Paul, you know, and in some ways, Paul is the protagonist in the situation because we want the Beatles to stay together, and he's the one trying to hold it together. Exactly. Yeah. Then you know, he's been criticized for some things, and and I think that one thing uh, that he hasn't been credit given credit for is is being a loyal partner to John, and. You know, and I think all of his energy is going into John. And, and you know, so kudos to him. He's very, very loyal. But, I mean, the, the downside is that he is not paying enough attention to George. Yeah. And, you know, I think we all, everybody also sympathizes with George's perspective. Yeah. We see how incredibly talented George is. This situation is not ideal for for. George and I think George is taking it very personally and and he's getting frustrated like well you know what if you're only obsessed with each other then get somebody else in that that you know you can appreciate that can kind of do what you want in this scenario you know he talks about bringing in Eric when he says maybe you need Eric Clapton right this is another thing I, I'm I'm getting annoyed about a lot of people taking these little lines yeah and misinterpreting them he says maybe you need Eric Clapton. That is a direct reference to something he says earlier about That's Eric right. Clapton. Yeah. Yeah. When he says 
Eric Clapton is really good at improvising and yep. playing long, um, connected sort of uh, you know passages of of, of of improvisation. And I'm not very good at that. I can only do little short spurts, or I need to sit and work stuff out. And that's been—we know that's true of George. That's always been George's approach from day dot. Is that he—he's not an improviser. He's a methodical crafter of parts and of little melodies. He's a—he's—he has a compositional approach to guitar playing. Yes. Eric Clapton is the opposite of that. You know, he's not—he's not saying like, oh fuck you, why don't you just get Eric Clapton because he's better than me? Like, it's not like a like people sort of uh, take that as a bit of a tantrum or a bit of a, um, like a, a threat or I don't know what, what, what people think it is. But, but what I'm saying is he says you need Eric Clapton, meaning you need a guy who can improvise for long stretches because yeah. that's how you want to approach this session. You want to yeah. just keep playing and vamping and 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 just you know whereas i want to sit and work out what the part is and that's yes. my approach so yes. you, you know he's saying like if you want that you need an eric clapton type person yeah. to do yeah. that and I, when he says you need you need an eric clapton but but that's not what i am you know i like, take uh, it i take it as that like he's getting a little bit frustrated yeah. and he's not saying yeah. you like you need to replace me with eric clapton yeah. but i do think it is a bit like well maybe you need somebody like that because you're clearly not listening to anything i'm saying like yeah. he is getting frustrated at that point i mean ultimately that's what billy does he comes in he's a jazz trained you know he's a and he's a blues player so his language is improvisation that's mm -hmm, literally mm -hmm. what he does that mm -hmm. is the musician that he is right right so he gets on the keyboard yep. and literally spits out great you know exactly what, they need. And exactly. Exactly yeah, what yeah, george yeah. is saying eric would have done right yes yes, yes. which so, was the best solution get get right. him in yeah, the keyboard player exactly you know um, yeah like he's kind of the glue you know the keyboards are so important and yeah you know, I, and usually, again, like everything's so weird in this situation. I don't think Paul's super happy to be playing bass the whole time. You know, like he seems really well, happy. John, like, John says that he always wants to play piano. You've got to rip him away from the piano. Right. Well, I'm sure Paul wanted to be on the piano and wanted to have his guitar rather than the bass because, but they have to do that because they're performing. Right. They've got cameras on yeah, them yeah. and they're thinking we yeah. have to do this live. Like that was the whole yeah. like conceit of it. Yeah, probably because, uh, you know, we know that Paul liked to overdub his bass parts as well. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, that's an interesting point. Uh, but, you know, sure if, you go, if you go to the argument between Paul and George, what was interesting yeah. about that argument is that like when Paul gets up and walks around, like he's frustrated because he, he probably needs time off camera. You know, like they probably should not be doing this with camera because I think the cameras also stress them out because they know they kind of look bad. Like George does comment about the fact that, you know, Paul was saying things to him with the cameras rolling. Like, I think they're embarrassed because cameras are rolling at the same time, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there's definitely times when John and George play their guitars loudly whilst they're talking so yeah. that the mics don't pick up what they're saying as much. Yeah, Peter Jackson yeah. talks about that a lot when he talks about the AI that they use yeah, yeah, yeah. to um to de de mix 
a lot of the audio is that yeah. there's, there's all Aha. these times when, you know. It took 50 yeah, years. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah, but, um, yeah. But, like, do, do you think that, you know, just another thing that I want to point out that everyone seems to be running with, which I'm not sure is quite right, you yeah. know, there's that, that, that bit when George brings I Me Mine in. Yep. And, and you, you know how John makes those comments about, uh, this is a rock and roll band. We don't do waltzes. Yep. That he's, he doesn't really mean that. Like, like people, people are, have read, have been reading that as John being dismissive of George's song. I don't think that's true at all. I, I, I've watched that scene a few times and I, I think John's just dicking around as, as, as he always does. I don't know. The third time I saw the part one, I was, I started to think that John is less serious than I thought he was at first. But George does say, well, I don't care if you don't like that. George does get a little bit defensive. So George is a little bit hurt and sensitive. So even though it may not have been as mean as it came off, like the first time I saw it, I don't think he was as serious. I still think it kind of wounds George a little bit. But even George saying his thing about, I don't care whether you like it or not. I don't also don't hear that as aggressively as it would read off the page. Like I think he's saying, I think he's saying like, I'll use it for my own thing. If, I agree. If, if I agree. you don't want it. I agree. But at the I, same I time, he does say it. He does say it. So I know, but, I, a- but I, don't, I don't think it's aggressive. I don't think it's like, oh, well, fuck you. I'll have, I don't even Definitely give a shit what not. you Nothing think. is aggressive. Like, you know, Nothing yeah, is yeah. aggressive with but these people guys. Are, people jump on that stuff. And, you know, the thing is, yeah, people say that, oh, look, that's the proof that John hated George's songs. And I just don't see, I don't see it that way at all. It's interesting to me that the issue is with Paul. Like, he pays attention to George's songs. He just pays more attention to John's songs. But yeah. he doesn't not pay attention, like, especially Old Brown Shoe. You know, he jumps he on the, the, the yeah. yeah, the drums, and then he picks up George's guitar. Does he? He does. He plays it. Really? Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I didn't notice that. So he plays it upside down? Yeah. Yeah, right. That's pretty cool. There's one scene that always sticks out for me. It's that scene when they're sitting around uh, in the circle, and Neil says, yeah, but they've got to compromise a bit about John and Yoko. Right. And Paul says, yeah, but I need to compromise as well. And I read it as Paul saying, yes, but I have to compromise first in order for them to compromise. But and Paul what has he means already compromised. By that, okay. No, but I think that's, I think he's defending his, his own compromising. He's saying like, I need to accept them and not, and not say, you can't bring Yoko to the studio yes. or, you know, like uh, the first compromise has to come from me so that they will compromise. I know, but I don't get that. I, I, I don't think he's saying that he hasn't done that. I think he's defending no, to I don't, the like, other. That one still confuses me because it's like, well, I don't get what they're not getting at this point. I read it as Paul saying, this is why I'm okay with it. Because, you know, mm. Paul, most of that conversation is Paul defending them. But everybody else, like he's cut a ton of everybody else is really frustrated with John and Yoko. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, and they're saying, they're kind of saying, Paul, you know, step it up, go talk to John, you know? Yeah, so Paul's saying, I won't do that because I need to compromise. 
Yeah, I mean, we don't know what's happened at that original meeting. We know that there's an issue between John and George. And when they come in that morning, they're all talking about the frustration of Yoko speaking for John. And Linda goes, I don't think that John believed anything that Yoko was saying. She was talking for John. And I don't think he really believed any of that, you know. No, it's, it's just talking. John didn't talk to you. Yoko talked for John. And what did George say? In the middle of all of that, actually, George went. So I'll see you. Yeah. So what the hell was Yoko what was saying? She saying? Yeah. Yeah. But we know that George walked out when in the John, meeting, yeah. John wouldn't speak for himself. Yeah, and Paul is talking to Neil at this point about the fact that this is when the whole telepathy comes in is Paul's like right. I know that why John's not speaking, but we're not at this elevated level of communication. And so that's an important thing to know is that John's not communicating like he, you know, we know that with Cynthia, apparently John always wanted Cynthia to know what John wanted for dinner. Like, it's kind of this thing, like if people love me enough and know me well enough, they should know what I'm thinking. And so I think that there's this thing going on where John's not speaking and he thinks that Paul knows what he wants and he's communicating. And Paul's saying, I don't know what he wants. Like, this is a problem. We don't. We don't, we're not communicating enough. So that's an important element. John's not speaking, Yoko's speaking. George left when Yoko continues to speak, which I understand. Like if I got in a fight with one of my collaborators of 10 years and they sent their girlfriend in, which I don't know them, how insulting would that be? Yeah, I can imagine him just being like, okay, if John's not going to fucking talk, then I'm, I'm leaving. Yeah, because I have a problem with John and I need to address it with him because Yoko, for all that Yoko is there, like part of me was kind of always like, oh, she's really benign. And then part of me is like, why is she there? She's not participating. Like, it's very odd. And when Paul goes, you know, well, it because, you know, if John had to choose Yoko or us, it's Yoko. It's kind of like, what the fuck are we talking about? Why is it between his girlfriend and the band? And his band, yeah. Nobody's why asking Paul. Why don't you have Paul. to choose between Linda and the band? Yeah, like why is it okay that you can have? Like, It's just like there's a weird thing going on that nobody's calling out. Like why does John need to make that decision? Absolutely. And I think the issue that goes unrecognized here is how much Yoko is playing into this situation I don't Mm. think it's just John wanting Yoko there. I think it's Yoko wanting to be there. Yeah, I I agree. And I think John's in too deep at this point, in a way. Like, there's dynamics between the two of them as well, between John and Yoko. And there's, the you know, like, um, Yoko's needs have come into the equation very strongly. You know, and it's it's not all about John. It might have been in the White Album all about John. Yes. Bringing her in for his own protection. But... This is, you know, three or four months down the track. Yep. Yeah. She wanted John to be doing stuff with her. And, you know, we've got that that interview that they do earlier in the day where they're talking about, like, where she talks about, like, I'm not so much interested in the Beatles stuff. I'm interested. And you can see, like, you can see that John pretty well doesn't even notice Yoko. Like, his eyes are on Paul and the band. And so she's there, you know, probably because he likes having her there. But I think she's there because Yoko wants to be there. She wants to make sure that she stays on John's radar. Right. 
Also, you know, she might just like the creative energy of being in that room, you know, and being in that circle. She might also get a little creative charge from being there. Yep, totally. I think let's also not underestimate the extent to which John has kind of bought his own mythology by this point. Like in, in the sense that, you know, he talks later on about, you know... I was a mess and I was this and then and then Yoko saved me or you know he talks about and then you know I went down with Neil and and um and yeah, yeah, yeah. Pete and Shotton and whatever Pete and Shotton, I found, yeah, yeah. Derek. found my ego again and all, all that yeah. sorry Derek not Neil you know a lot has happened in those few months where he has entwined himself with Yoko and he probably believes at this point that um you know that this is just this is who he is now well, not necessarily this is the, at the expense well, of the Beatles you, you know what I mean like yeah I mean he might buy into this is the new me that's strong and this is who I need to be to be a dominant force totally they're also doing hair one together yeah which is also an investment in each other well, that's right. And, you know, Marianne Faithful talks about this, that when you're doing heroin, like your world becomes very small. Like the people that you're doing heroin yeah. with are critically important to you. Yeah. And Paul knows that they're doing this. And sometimes I think when he's looking sad, he like he doesn't know how to reach John. And yeah. John and Yoko are doing this together. And again, when I'm saying that Yoko wants John to do stuff with her, not the Beatles, I mean, I love the Beatles and I want John to be. Uh, you know, in it. But in some ways, if we just look at Yoko Ono, the artist, she thinks she's doing really cool stuff. So it's not like it's awful that she wants John to go off, you know? Yeah. And I think what Yoko does is she manages to frame what they're doing as having a higher level purpose artistically. And I think John really, you know, bought into that, this idea. But I just wish that they had understood that what the Beatles was doing was important too. I I sort of think it took a long time to realize that pop music, music that people love is every bit as important, you know? Especially when you're the Beatles and you're doing it better than everyone else and paving the way for everything that's going to come afterwards. And I think that's a difference between Paul and Linda and John and Yoko is Paul and Linda believe that the Beatles are important. Right. Yep. And I'm not suggesting that they don't love each other, by the way, (laughs) you know, like the. No, me neither. I mean, I think Paul and Linda love each other a ton and John and Yoko love each other a ton, but Paul and John still love each other a ton and still have a chemistry, creative chemistry. I mean, you know, it's like that bit as well. Yeah. Like, so finally, obviously Mal reaches John. Yeah. On the phone, yeah. Right? And, you know, what happens? He brings the phone to, to, to Paul, right? He, he says, you know, Paul, go and speak to John, yeah. right? So Paul goes off. Paul comes back. What's happening? He'll, he's coming, right? Yeah. Uh, even just in, that, in those little moments, like you just, you, you get the very clear sense that Paul is the only person who could have spoken to John in that moment, you know? Like he doesn't want to... He's not telling Mal, I'll be there in an hour. He's not telling Ringo, I'll right. be there in an hour. He's telling, yes. he's, he's like, whatever it was that held him up that morning. Yeah. Which, who knows? Did yeah, he just yeah, sleep yeah, in? Yeah. yeah. Was he, does, was he, 
doing heroin with Yoko? Was he just running like, like there's a whole big deal made of the fact that John's not there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's anything really, whatever it is, Paul is the one who gets to be privy to it because that's still what their relationship is. You know. Well, it's- yeah. So, the, so your point is that that is a reflection of how primary Lennon and McCartney, how much Correct. they do co-lead and really yes. only speak to each other. Like, you know, that's Correct. the thing. And that's the problem is that when you look at this movie, you realize that really Paul and John, this is a movie that revolves around Paul and John. And the problem is we see how good George is. The interesting thing is, is that George, I think, is still invested. And this is my point about George and Paul is I think Paul and George do have a relationship. I think that George is trying to connect with Paul musically. Like John doesn't annoy George. But at the same time, I do feel like George brings a lot to the table for Paul. Like he is constantly bringing ideas to Paul's songs and championing Paul's songs. So I think there's more to that relationship. Again, they met younger. They probably can get more annoyed with each other. But I think one of the things for me that was really instructive to the Paul and George fight uh, or disagreement, very, very (laughs) gentle disagreement that they had fundamentally, slight disagreement in terms of approach, was that Paul gets up, he's stressed, he sits down, he's like, let's move on. And George is like, no, you know, let's no, no, no. keep let's, going let's on. Let's do this. this. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah, they get and over like, it. Yeah, well, well, you know, to your point, you know, the majority of what we see in the film in terms of their musical process is very, very cohesive. Yes. Really. Like, yes, there's a lot of fucking around. That's another thing. But yeah. when they're working, right? It's generally really productive. Um, There's a lot of great interplay between them in terms of discussing ideas, teaching each other. You know, there's that bit in like where they're doing Let It Be and um, they do that terrible thing that thank goodness they abandoned in the end where they go to the riff like half a bar early, you know, mm-hmm. and John mm-hmm. can't get his head around it. Mm-hmm. And George goes over and like is help, you know, helping mm-hmm. him figure out the timing of, of that, of that riff. And John's like, what? I'm ending up on the wrong note. And yeah, what's, yeah, what's, yeah. You know? So yeah, there, but there's, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of that interplay. There's a lot yeah. of, and it's not just between one and the other. It's, yeah. it's happening between all four of them, yeah. and, you know, in all different, directions um and there's a lot of ideas being thrown around about and they're very open i find them very open and generous and lovely really and for all the talk about paul being this dominant figure and all that which you know in some ways he obviously is but you know there's a lot of examples where you know john will say oh you know do you want the bass to come in here and paul's like i don't know maybe and john's like Okay, well, I'll just play it by ear then. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And there's a lot. Paul is very open to when, when you know when he's open, he's open. You know what I mean? When he when he has a specific idea, okay. I mean, I totally get that as yeah. a, as a songwriter and as yeah. a musician. When you know what you want, you know what you want. Also, when you hear something in your head yes. and you think of so, like when he's telling Ringo 
how to play the 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 um, verse of "Don't Let Me Down" and do some light stuff on the cymbals yeah. and keep keep it really open and 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 you know you can tell Paul is really hearing that and Ringo's really not doing the thing that Paul's hearing. Yeah, yes, like he has a definite idea. Yes, and then the other times, yeah, he's developing them and open. You're you're right. I mean, yeah. he has clearly the most arranger brain of all of them. And John references this in the lunchroom scene. I mean, I can see how, like, I can see how lovely George would be to work with when George is on board, when George is happy. And like he and Paul work together very well when they're happy, John and George too. But I also could see how Paul would crave to work with John because John looks like he would be so much fun to work with because he's not super dominant but he's pretty receptive and has good taste and he's fun and, and comes funny. up with good ideas on, on the fly. Yeah. Um, and has good taste. Like, and, yeah. 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 And, and it's just fun and playful. Yes. Yes. But John brings out the playful in him as well. Right. So yeah. And you can but, see Paul yeah. loves that. Exactly. And you can almost see that Paul um, really feeds off John when that when they start riffing and and being silly together and stuff you yes. can really see Paul loves that like it's not like it's a unwanted distraction for right, him right, he right. just leans right into it and uh, I, some of my favorite moments in the film are just those great um bits where John and Paul, not necessarily the obvious ones, like two of us as ventriloquists and all, yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's great. It's, you know, I, I love watching that stuff. But even just when in those moments where you see there's a great chemistry between John and Paul that's kind of half serious and half. Uh, like Commonwealth. Uh, like Commonwealth, right, where, where it's like there's amazing shit happening Oh my god, and, I love and, that and, so much. Yeah, it's brilliant. And and but the, you like how how great's that moment when Paul first uh, stumbles on that line, um, but it's but you're much, much too, too wealth, wealthy yes. for me or yes. something. And then John corrects him and says, yeah. "Much too common for me." And Paul's just like. Yes, that's yes. why you're in the band. <laughs> <laughs> like, exactly. But also when John goes there, yes. Yes. I mean that's yeah. so cute because it's exactly. he's playing the com- the old big the British queen. person. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And it makes it not serious, but it also makes it really interesting, you know? Right. And Paul loves it. Like he 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 thinks I it's hilarious. I loved it. It and, makes it fun. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant and and that like you're right like that when john says yes it's just like that like is a little shot of energy for paul and he just goes yeah we're we're going there you know but i love that moment when john changes wealthy to common yes and 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 paul just yeah and paul just like it's that brilliant john thing where it's like his one thing (laughs) is just perfect and it's and 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 paul on, on like quite the opposite is just like a fountain a never-ending fountain of ideas and some of them are amazing and some of them are less good and yeah, and yeah, just, yeah. he's constantly giving 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 and then john just like finds that one thing you know that that just elevates yeah yeah, 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 yeah yeah elevates exactly what paul's doing and that point about what paul gives to john is that like hunter davies in his book says that one of his favorite 
parts was going to the studio and watching and John came alive when he was with Paul. So I think his intensity sort of like, you know, energizes John. You can see how they're so good for each other. Right. And something else that I really enjoyed actually was that Yoko got really into yep. it. You know, she was she was really getting and vibing off of that and getting into it and dancing. Like I, I enjoyed seeing her really get into the music. That right. was fun. I mean, I guess this was his, her thing. It's political, you know, it, but uh, it was super cute. Yep, totally. I, the other example of that, which is less obvious that I love, is when they're doing Bathroom Window and John's on piano. Mm -hmm. And um, firstly, like, John is singing the harmony part, which is higher than the melody part. It's mm -hmm. extremely rare example of John and Paul harmonizing with John on top yep. and Paul underneath. So cool. It's just so, so great to listen to that blend, which you basically never hear that. Um, but also, you know, obviously John loved that song. You can tell, you know, he's yeah. really into it. And then they have that little banter about um, Tuesday, you know, could I speak to Paul? You know, yeah, like, yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. About this is Tuesday speaking. <laughs> Is that Paul? <laughs> I like to have a word with you. I've got something to be Again, it's just that little straddling of really intensely musically involved and then just kind of turning it into something silly and uh, comical, which yes. they then both really feed off. You know, it's just... That, yeah, that and those... John feeds off Paul doing that too. It's not like it's yeah, not like Paul exactly. is just laughing at John. Like he loves he loves to no. laugh at John, and John loves to perform for Paul and make Paul laugh. Yes. but then then Paul also makes John laugh. You know? Yeah, totally. I mean, they, they just they just feed each other and um, like respond to each other in a in a completely unique way. You know, like you can feel that no one else could yeah could be in on that. You know, that's what I mean like, about like, even when George is kind of like with the, the chord thing, it's like they're Paul and John are, are on their own little wavelength yes. of like a constant musical conversation. You know what? Another good example to me was when they're playing, um, when they're playing, um, the two of us and, and John is like, it's just too like, you know, when he's like, it's too rocky or something like that or too. Yeah. And, and Paul's like, well, get me my guitar. And then, then they get a different groove that it was like John identified that there was, it was lacking something. Yeah. And then Paul gets his guitar and they immediately take it to the next level. And you yeah. can see that, that like spark between them. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is right. This is yeah. right. And it was so cute, you know? One of my favorite, favorite moments was, it's so weird because it's such a small moment, but it's when um, Paul sort of like, Paul goes into his like Elvis mode and um, and Mal goes, um, oh, it was Elvis's, uh, it was Elvis's birthday. birthday. Yeah. yeah. And Paul goes into, you know, singing like, and saying, God save our gracious queen. And John is like, you know, hailing to the king. 
To me, that was such a shared love of Elvis, the shared history. Um, Also, I love that scene where, you know, Paul's like, Mac show, Mac show. And they start playing an old um, um, uh, Hamburg and it's the New Orleans song and both George and Paul start doing to do like some kind of a, Hey, and they do that little hand. Uh, It it must've been a show that they used to do, you know? Yeah. yeah. And they just fall into it. The thing about John and Paul too, is I think they're singing a lot of Lennon McCartney songs back to each other. And it's really meaningful. Like I think they're having a whole conversation throughout this entire thing through their songs. Thanks so much for listening. This is the end of part one. We will be back with another two episodes in the next few days. So please keep an eye out for it. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again. Bye.